Hello, friends. Greetings. Welcome back to What Are We Da Show, a bad podcast about anime and other media, but anime first. And even though it's bad, we feel like with enough enough love and effort, I feel like that can that can be good still. And we hope you agree. But even if you don't, welcome to you. Uh, I am the Subtle Doctor, and joining me for this uh, podcast discussion today that I am extremely excited about is uh, the ever-present on this pod, my, my good friend, the chromiest dome, the guiltiest gear. It is Shadon. Evening, Doc. I am, how shall we say, burning. Well, you did. With desire to start talking about this. I tried to stop him. I tried to dive in front of his uh, sound and it didn't it didn't work. Look, look, it's not the first, it's certainly not going to be the last time that I'm going to be making many, many different burning quips. There is one lined up for later when we discuss a certain scene, which will make me sound like an incredibly crass individual, but I don't care. Because it's exactly what I thought of as soon as that scene happened. And I just thought, that's going in the pod. That'll be fun to talk about, given the, um, I guess, surprising to me, sort of uh, new wave of, uh, what is it, anti-sex or sex negative or just prudishness uh, about uh, entertainment online that I've been seeing crop up, which is just, is just kind of uh, strikes me as odd. But in that context, that scene will be fun to talk about. There'll be a lot of fun scenes to to talk about uh, because we're going to be discussing the 2018 uh, Korean film, Burning. Probably my favorite film. Uh, I think I've said on this pod before. uh, But in case you're tuning into Burning, you're like, screw the the anime discussion. I haven't checked out Watery Death Show because I don't really care about anime, but Burning is cool and arty and sophisticated. Um, so I want to listen to these two idiots try to talk about it. Uh, but just so just in case this is the first time listening, Burning, uh, probably my favorite movie. Um, even though I, <laughs> I am afflicted with a recency bias uh, hugely, and I've seen this movie, I saw this movie for the first time like two years ago. Um so it has occupied the top spot for not a long time. Whereas Shadon is the sort of person that like can see Terminator 2 as a child um, and it's his favorite movie for the rest of his life. Am I correct? You are correct. And uh, that will need to be re-examined at some point. But if you want my uh, initial thoughts on this film. I do. Um, which, which I will say now, I think the working title for this film should be Right Club. Right Club? Oh, as in uh, <laughs> as in Fight Club. You've made me very sad. I just want you to know that I am pinching <laughs> pinching the bridge of my nose so hard because I don't want to bite my tongue. That probably wouldn't be good audio, but uh, you've you've made me you've made me angry, uh, and I'm going to try to get over it. The rage is burning within me. You've got the entire entire pod to get through that, don't you worry. But yes, I did rather enjoy Burning. I, I will say also that I have been in this film 
at many points in my life, and I don't like it. Mm, that's an interesting <laughs> one. Yeah. Yeah, so you felt... Uh, I don't want to get too deep into the talking points yet, because we need to set the table. But so you felt... Uh, you you felt... Um, like seen by the movie or or the movie kind of jived with your experience or you felt maybe this is a little this is biographical about me you you felt that at some points in various places and to certain degrees but um obviously one's life situation shifts over time but uh yeah hence why the uh i use the past tense of i've been in this film in, at various points <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, we've all been asked to feed I, a cat that we're not sure whether they actually yeah. exist Thankfully, I was not bequeathed a cow by my father so the cat himself was getting into legal troubles. Um, so oh. that's definitely not what area of my life overlaps with the film. That's something that uh, I can't relate to. But there are certainly other bits of what it says about being young, being creative, maybe even a little bit of discussion about mental illness. Who knows? There's a lot of layers to this, a lot of ways you mm-hmm. interpret it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be going through all of that soon, so I'm very excited to talk about it. But yeah, I otherwise thoroughly enjoyed this film. Um, my only complaint, just to get out there early, is I think it might be a touch too long, T- just a tiny bit. Mm. But okay, but that's about that's about it, really. And the, and when I say that, I don't say like, oh, it was so long, it put me to sleep. I was just like, mm, could have been a little bit more slick. Um, but anyway, mm. that's not really all. Interesting. There. That's the, an interesting read. Most of most of what I'll be talking about will be in the positive, of course. Yes, yeah, so I think this movie is um perfect. Uh I I think I I love everything about it. The only thing that I have ever disliked about it is not the film's fault, it's being accurate. It's when uh Donald Trump is on the news talking about uh, immigration policy in the background. <laughs> I'm like, god damn it. That's an unpleasant memory. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I, if I may interject, what I find really funny about that is um, we're going to get into, of course, the backstory of the film and its origins as a Haruki Murakami short story. So obviously Trump did not exist in the uh, original short story, to my knowledge. Um, unfortunately, it exists in real life as well, but what can you do? Um, and I just think I, I want to be a fly on the wall in the ad- adaptation process for like, right, we need someone talking on the television about youth employment and such. Who can we rely on? And then suddenly there's this guy who just walks into the writer's room and says, have you fucking heard what that stupid orange troglodyte, camel testicle looking bastard has said again? And then their eyes just wide like, yeah, mm. we can use this for, it's for free. <laughs> right. That'll do. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. And uh, I think in a movie about uh, divisions, uh, and and uncrossable borders. Uh, it was not a coincidence that Donald Trump was on television talking about immigration in a home situated next to the North Korea border. Oh, um, I'll get, just you, just you wait until I start talking about the anti-imperialistic undercurrents as well. Mm. That's to come. So mm-hmm. I think. Uh, uh, well, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. You go ahead. I was just going to say, though, this is definitely Trump's best appearance in film since Home Alone 2. <laughs> oh, since Home Alone 2. I forgot he was in Home Alone 2. Um, if only we all could. I know. If only I know, we all could. I know. It's, uh... Oh, boy. Well, um, so, so 
Yeah, I think the the movie is is perfect. It is definitely my kind of film. Uh, it is a, a slow burn, har har, uh, but it is a, a movie that is, I think, not slick um, on purpose in a lot of ways. It's very lingering uh, and a lot of long shots and things like that. And when we get into the director's ethos, uh, I think that that might um, inform why that is beyond, you know, people thinking like, oh, he's just trying to be pretentious and artsy. Um, I think there's a reason, a reason why his directorial style uh, in this movie lends that way. I can't really speak about the director's work um, writ large because this is the only uh, Lee Chang Dong movie that I have seen. Um, I own the Criterion, uh, uh, what's it, the release of um what's the film called uh secret sunshine uh but a lot of his uh, movies especially his earlier movies are difficult to find like i'd really like to own peppermint candy from 99 um but i'm sort of stuck i guess fishing around on ebay for a dvd i don't think that's going to get a blu-ray release anytime soon but but poetry and secret sunshine are readily available streaming and um in terms of physical releases as uh as is uh burning and uh burning is the first movie he's directed in 2018 in uh, eight years uh he directed poetry in 2010 before that uh, which is a really interesting film i've seen part of it actually about uh life of uh, an elderly woman in korea um and Burning, I, I would say, so you talked about some of the themes that you're going to go into. And I'm very interested in all of those because like kind of none of them were the major ones that I took away. Like, and, and that's the beautiful thing I think about this movie is that it's so kind of metaphorical and lyrical in a lot of ways that like, I it's kind of just an experience and people come away from it with a lot of different things. And the, the main two that I think I want to talk about are uh class i think this is Mm -hmm. a very like this is a movie that is so much about wealth inequality and class um you know much like it's sort of more famous younger brother uh parasite Mm. you know which which came out the next year uh by a different director of course um Director Bong, I can't remember his full name. Do you remember? Bong Joon Ho. Thank you. Uh, I'm used to. I've been watching a lot of interviews and stuff, and like people will just refer to him as Director Bong and Director Lee. And so I've I've lost the the other parts of the name. But to to, to the to the uneducated layman, like calling him, um, you know, Mister Bong and all that is a is a bad idea. Yeah, <laughs> I can't see sure. it ending well. Sure, in English. Uh, it, but sounds like sounds like the name of a Seth Green character. <laughs> sure um so uh so class and then i think like perspective and real versus unreal that kind of thing were uh were were the the big things that i i think i'm going to talk about today but we'll touch on big things we'll touch on a, a ton of stuff i think um 
But uh, but yeah, do you have any other like big picture thoughts about the film or maybe like before we get into the nitty gritty and the spoiler stuff, because this is going to be spoiler heavy. Uh, oh, yeah. Who, who would you recommend this film to? Well, it's funny you mentioned Parasite because Parasite was um, a film that actually gained the widespread international attention that this film did not, to my knowledge. I mean, this this film was critically lauded and acclaimed, uh, but I don't think it got anywhere near the wider release or wider crit, uh, commercial um, success, relatively speaking, that Parasite did. So I can say with absolute certainty, if you enjoy Parasite, you'll enjoy this, and probably for much the same reasons. Um even though the actual context of the stories are very, very different, they do traffic in a lot of commonalities in terms of themes, such as class, as you mentioned. So yeah, that's a very easy recommendation for me to people who like Parasite. No issue there. Um, additionally, if you've also recently watched uh, the wonderful Michelle Yeoh film, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which I just watched this weekend. So jealous. I can also similar. I can also similarly recommend it to you for, again, much the same reasons. Um it is, yeah, it's an exceptional piece of Korean cinema, as always. I mean, I I, I know we cherry-pick when it comes to Korean cinema, of course. There's probably as many duds out there as there are Western stuff, but they, they really, there really does seem to be, like, a, a certain quality to the filmmaking that is just beyond compare in this some of these films, and this is definitely one of them. If I had any other big-picture thoughts to give, <clears throat> one of the things I think is worth noting, again, is just to call back quickly to Haruki Murakami. Yeah. Um... <clears throat> and respect to his ba- the background because there's a key thing that I, I thought was interesting and ties into also uh, this film's adaptation because as I've said many times this podcast I am fascinated by the process of adaptation this came from um, a short story of his and I think it was a collection called what, what bloody hell was it again it was something to the effect of uh, yeah the elephant vanishes uh, and the story itself was called barn burning and when I read the Wikipedia synopsis, the, like, the skeleton uh, of that story, it forms, of course, the entirety of Burning, but much of it is very specific to Korea mm-hmm. um, and Korean like culture and youth as well, I would say. Um, in translating it from uh, Haruki Murakami's original work, it has become a very singularly Korean product in terms of it, it, what it's about. Uh, I mean, after all, Hiroki Murakami himself is Japanese. Um, and he himself has had quite a l- very long history of writing, although there have been criticisms of his work in general, particularly of how it portrays women, which I think some people felt like also was uh, part of like, why they didn't, why they felt like critical of Hami. And I apologize for mispronouncing her name there, the lead female character of this film, although other people feel differently, just worth noticing that. But yeah, um, what originally was a specifically Japanese story set in Japan um, is a very much now a, a Korean one in all the ways that are important, uh, which also makes some of the uh, one particular scene that involves the smoking of um, cannabis, marijuana, pot, whatever you want right. to call it, uh, have a slightly different tenor because in Japan, apparently that's more of a more severe <laughs> crime than uh, possessing child pornography. Look at you, Roroni Kenshin, <laughs> or whatever yeah. the fuck your name is. Uh... Sorry, I, I just take every opportunity I can to remind people that that person exists and he deserves to be thrown off a cliff. He s- certainly should not be working for no. Shueisha. His his uh his greenhouse needs to be burned down. <laughs> yes, that way. yes, he's the one who's waiting for you to burn down for sure. 
Um, yeah. Is it also do you, do you know if it's also uh, recreational marijuana use um, legal or uh, heavily criminalized or whatever in Korea? I don't know. I should have asked my my best friend. My, so I, I didn't talk at all. What a huge oversight on my part to my IRL best friend, my uh, roommate from undergrad who spent um, uh, almost a decade living in Seoul, South Korea. Um, that would have been good background reads. This is why we're a bad podcast, my friend, uh, because I did not do that very easy research called picking up a phone and calling your friend. <laughs> it's all good. But yeah, I, I just I just have to note like that there could very well be a different context on the consumption of drugs like that in Korea versus in Japan. Because I feel like that given Haruki Murakami is Japanese and that was specifically something that they did in Japan, mm-hmm. because the book is, sorry, the story is set there as opposed to in Korea, that it has that different context to it. But nonetheless, uh, the story works wonderfully in uh, the context of South Korea and makes good use of the setting to provide uh, a depiction of someone who is trapped between two worlds in many different re- respects, like many metaphors for that. Um and this also, again, of course, ties into the undercurrent of anti-imperialism um, that also has a commonality with what you see in Parasite, again, why I recommended that before. The one other final thing I want to say to get this out here right now. This is a film that's deeply ambiguous in a lot of ways. And it's not ambiguous in what, uh, paradox, this may sound in an obvious way. Um, I mentioned Everything Everywhere All at Once, where the fantastical in that film is very apparent. There are hot dog fingers, for example. I will say no more than that. Um, but there is, if there is a, how should we say, a fantastical or fanciful element to this film, uh, it isn't immediately obvious. And so you can end up having uh, one person view this film and come up with an entirely different interpretation of what legitimately, literally, actually happened and what didn't. Mm-hmm. And there is a gradient along that as well in which not like people might say this particular person, this character did exist at one point and no longer exists at all or exists in some sort of like idealized form. Um, this isn't real. Like the, there's a cat. Did the cat exist at any given point or not? All of that is open for discussion, but I'm going to put this out there as part of my overall screed on hating on general critic culture, YouTube culture, and all this sort of stuff. I care not one fucking whit for the discussion of what actually legitimately happened in this film and if it's solely for the sake of answering that question in of itself. Because to me, Mm. this film is one where the actual, the fruit of it, the meat of it, the thing that really provides uh, one with uh, intellectual sustenance is deriving meaning from your interpretation of what you think happened. So along the gamut of all of the different things that you feel may or may not have happened, uh, it's not my place to disagree with you. I won't disagree with you because I think all of it's open interpretation. Um, but I would only implore that if you do watch this film, try to come away with it by taking some meaning out of it. It reminds me of um, all that guff about Annihilation, the film, oh. and how so many people were like, oh, uh, you know, the story's about the alien that's now running around. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. The book is certainly put not about fucking... that. <laughs> yeah, put put your fucking content in the bin where it belongs, honestly. <laughs> um, God, because I found that extremely aggrieving when that happened. But in 
on the flip side of it, like, do you remember when we did this? This might sound like a bit of a strange tangent, but do you remember when we did Decadence? Not Decadence, sorry, no, not Decadence. Gil's last tour. I do indeed. Yeah, we had a question at one point, which um, was something to the effect of, like, what are the cuts? Uh, the cuts being those weird little tube aliens. Um, oh God, I forgot that was did, what they were and, called. And yeah, and the question was, are they man-made or are they extraterrestrial? And I actually answered at the time, they could be either. And there's a good and both in either case, there's meaning to be taken out for them. Mm-hmm. Where uh, if they were man-made, then they all then man eventually through like in his pursuit of war will ultimately burn himself out by creating something that will exceed his power to control. Or if they were indeed aliens, um, then only divine intervention—not literally, as in holy or religious intervention, but just more of a godly force—can uh, come in and stop man from destroying himself. Both of those interpretations at the time of watching that show were valid, and that's the meaning I took from. And that's the kind of approach I'd want to take to covering this film. Mm. And that's the approach, in turn, that I would recommend that you, would be listener at home, should also take as well. And it's certainly very worth watching for that reason as well. I agree um, in terms of not being an asshole about it and not being mad. I do think there is some fun to be had with a, a movie like this and making your case. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this is this is uh, what ha- what actually happened. Uh, you know, th- this person is a bad person because they did this. And this is the point in the movie where it stops being real, quote unquote. You know what I mean? Like. I think on a certain level, it's fun, again, as long as those conversations are um, in good fun, again, and not militant or whatever. Uh, but ultimately, to, I think, to get the most out of the film and to be on the same wavelength as um, Lee Chang Dong, uh, I think you're going to want to take the approach uh, that, that you took, that you outlined there. Uh, so I agree with you. Um, for my part, in terms of overall thoughts slash, uh, I think I probably, by saying I think the film is perfect, I think that's a, that's a mic drop of overall thoughts. Um, who would I recommend the film for? I mean, you know, fans of Korean cinema, as you say, of course, uh, I think they'll feel right at home. Um, but at the same time. Uh, I, do, I do think it is kind of a unique movie um, in, in some ways. I think it's a very literary film. And I think the fact that um, Lee Cheng Dong had and has a another career as a novelist um, is uh, is evident. And in, in you can see that in how he writes his, his films. Um, I think if you're the kind of person that enjoys watching a film more than once to to get more out of it uh if you yeah like shadan was saying if you um approach art in, in the way he talked about and try to look for not an, an a sort of historical objective uh facts of the matter uh about events in the, in the movie but like look at them as an artist trying to communicate something to you, even if it's not a statement, even if it's just a question, trying to wrestle with what that question is 
and then and and maybe reflecting on what the answer might be in your in your own life. Um, you know, if you like slow burns, uh, you know, you talked about the movie not being as critically lauded in terms of, or maybe not as critical, but like a being as well known, right? Um, and that is, I think, true definitely in America, for sure. Um, the 2018 Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, we know the 19 award went to Parasite. The 18 award, uh, Burning, was not even nominated, um, which I haven't, I've only seen one of the nominated films for the 18 slate. And it's not a movie I can say this movie definitely shouldn't be nominated. Um, and that movie is a Japanese film uh, called Shoplifters, directed by Hirokazu Koreeda, that we may be covering on this here podcast in the future, I'll just say. Because I, I adore that movie. And I think that movie, because it was, you know, a blip uh, on the Oscars that year, and for other reasons, you know, I think more people have probably seen it. And I will say, I think if you if you like that movie, uh, again, it's a burning is not a movie that says the same things, but like the sort of slow uh, lingering style of it and the examination of of poverty um, in a different sort of way uh, than Shoplifters does it. I think that you will like this movie a bunch. Mm hmm. Also, I will also say that if you at any point have ever written any sort of fiction, particularly of aspirations to becoming a full-time author, and I'm talking even if you've just written fan fiction, yeah, watch this film. Watch it through the lens of those experiences and you'll see a lot of yourself in this film as I did. Because that's where I came from from this. Like, Because I used to write, um, or want to write, and then it kind of ironically been burned out of me hmm. oops hmm. Uh, so i haven't done that in a very long time unfortunately uh i i don't even know if i'll ever get back to it there's no point making false promises on a podcast or any in any other arena but yeah um if you've ever been in that arena or even just dare i say creatively uh minded mm -hmm. yeah you'll find uh something to relate to in this film writing's hard <laughs> it's really hard <laughs> Um, but that's the film. That's part of what this film expresses, believe me. <laughs> I am uh, extremely jealous for people to whom it comes naturally and or easy. Um, although I, I'm sure that there are difficult parts in that process, even if, you know, some parts are in fact uh, smooth and flowing. Like, let's say... Like letting your imagination run away from you. Right. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. Um, okay. So, um, again, this podcast will be very spoilery, uh, but uh, really quick, we are going to just acknowledge uh, a few of the people uh, involved in making the movie, and then uh, Shadon is going to summarize the movie. Um, I don't know if you want to, we'll let you decide, Shadon, if you want to give one of those summaries that's like, hey, here's a tease. Uh, or if you want to be like, I'm about to outline the whole entire film. Um, 
I'll leave that up to you and uh, just to give the listener fair warning what you decide to do. So, yep. Uh, as I say, 2018 film directed by Lee Chang Dong. Um, this movie, uh, it won a lot of awards um, around the world. Uh, it's hard for me to uh, pick out uh, the the good ones. I think uh, very important ones that it won and the ones that helped uh, get this movie noticed in the ways it has been are the awards at the, at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, it apparently got one of the highest, like, pure scores. Um, like, I think that they do scores, uh, uh, like, four is the highest you can get. And it got, like, 3.8. Uh, and that was, you know, the highest that a film had gotten as of 2018. I don't know if a if another film at Cannes has uh has eclipsed it. But uh it won Burning did the um Fipresky Prize um which is given by the International Federation of Film Critics uh and it won the Vulcan Award uh which is an award of a technical artist an independent film award created in 2003. It rewards the work of a technician for his or her collaboration in the creation of a film. Um, uh, and that award was given to, uh, I think, one of the producers of the movie. But the uh, Fereski Prize, uh, sorry, I need to get this right. Fipreski Prize, I think is how you, I did, my vision is bad, um, was given to Lee Cheng Dong. But there's like a, so many, so many awards. Asia Pacific Screen Awards, it got the Jury Grand Prize. Um, Cine 21 gave it Best Film, Best Director, Best Cinematography. Um, it, it won, uh, I don't know, the IndieWire Critics Poll, Best Supporting Actor, Steven Yun. Um, Kofra Film Awards, Best Director, Lee Chang Dong. Uh, Korea Association Film Critics. Um, it won uh, a uh, Fipresky Award there and Award for Best Cinematography. Um, London Film Week, Best Film, Best Director, Best Screenplay. Um, Stephen Young won Best Supporting Actor again for the National Society of Film Critics and the Virtuoso Award from the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. I mean, I could go on and on. Um, Moog won the Best Original Score from the International Cinephile Society. Uh, they did the, the very minimalist music uh, in the movie. Um, or no, sorry, they were the runner-up. I apologize. Best Original Score runner-up that year. But uh, Toronto Film Critics gave it Best Foreign Language Film and Stephen Yun Best Supporting Actor. So, yeah, tons of acclaim for this movie. And I mentioned Stephen Yun. I want to shout out the the, the principal cast because um, to say that they are incredible is not doing them justice. I think that these three mm. people were just like unparalleled amazing like i think you know we'll, we'll I, I, maybe this is the best place to talk about like how he, the uh lee directed them but uh whenever we talk about it um you know 
I, I think you'll understand. No, yeah, we're going to talk about it here. This is the place. So buckle up, Shadon. I'm going to talk longer than I thought I was going to talk. So um, do it. So UIN, I'm sure I'm butchering this name. Uh, he was the leading man. Uh, he plays um, uh, Jung Su in this film, uh, who is, uh, well, I'll let you talk about uh, kind of <laughs> the character uh, in the film. But uh, other movies that UIN is in, um, if you have a Netflix Netflix subscription, you would have seen him be the leading man in Hashtag Alive, the zombie film that is very much a pandemic movie because it came out in 2020 and UIN is a character who's trapped inside of his apartment while hordes of infected roam the streets. Um, he was in... Man, this isn't a big paragraph style. I just need a friggin' tabled list. Why can Wikipedia not not help me out in terms of a tabled list? Filmography. Wikipedia has failed us again yes. in so many respects. <laughs> um, I think like he's well known for his role in Punch in 2011, where he's like a troubled kid that a teacher has to form a bond with to kind of help. Um. He's he's known in Korea for veteran, I think for for his uh I think he's I want to say he's the villain in that movie. I've not seen it. Um in 2015. But if you read interviews like about burning uh that he gave, I really do think like that changed him in a lot of ways and changed his approach uh to acting and and everything like that. Um let me see if I can find some things that he said. Uh, he said about burning that it expresses the inner side of youth so deeply the difference between what you want to be and what you are. He said that he's trying to summarize the movie, I think, like because he will go on the interview circuit, you know, and people will be like, what's this movie about? And he's like, uh, <laughs> how do I give you a soundbite of what burning's about? Um, <laughs> but I think he ended up saying to one show that burning. So we don't understand ourselves. We don't understand others and we don't understand the world around us fully, but we have to act as if we do. And burning can raise an alarm about that attitude, he said. And uh, talking about like how uh, director Lee kind of helped him and uh, was, was different working with him uh, because he was known Shadon for being very, angry, loud, expressive, boisterous characters, which if you've only seen them in this movie, it'll be really strange to you, right? Does not that strike you as weird? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, he's to, to borrow a phrase I've heard elsewhere, like this, his character's like voice and the way he speaks in this film, there's a lot of screaming, but it's all only just barely above a whisper. Yeah. If you know mm -hmm. what I mean. Yeah, de definitely. I mean, uh, he's, uh, he inhabits this really shy inward facing character. Um, and you know, part of what you, you mentioned the screaming from the inside, you know, part of what I love about this movie and what I think I love about like a lot of, uh, art, uh, film TV comes from like Japan, Korea, um, is 
and I'm borrowing this from an interview Stephen Yun gave, uh, that in collectivist societies, putting a brave face on and putting your best foot forward is the default attitude and something that you're always expected to do. It's always emphasized. And so when you live in places like that, a surprising amount of, of emotion can be expressed from just like a teeth sucking noise. You know what I mean? And like body language, subtle, understated phrases, turns of phrase movements can be, can can be so loaded and say so much. Um, and that comes across in, in this film and a lot of other uh, films from that part of the world. And I just love it so much. Um, uh, so you says about director Lee that he doesn't ask me to express my feelings, but just to exist and the edit will take care of the rest. I'm obsessive about expression, but director Lee recognizes he, he recognized in me. So, so he saw he's you is saying like, I've always been obsessive about expression about like pushing a feeling out of me onto the screen. And he's surprised that Lee picked him for this movie, but he's saying Lee recognized the resonance that I had inside of me. And he kind of clamped down on the expression. He excluded it, but still had faith that he could act this part uh, in the way that he wanted to, Um, Mm. which is super cool. Um, So uh, you mentioned Jaime and she's played by uh, Jean, uh, Jong So, uh, boy, I'm, <laughs> please forgive us, by the way, for mispronouncing these, uh, these names. I, I am terrible. Uh, it's Jian Jong So. Um, she played Jaime in this film, uh, the female lead. And I'm about to blow your mind, Shadon. Are you, is your mind ready to be blown? Always. Burning was not only her first role. The audition for Burning was her first ever audition as an actress. Bloody hell. <laughs> I, 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 there's something about that in relative to the film's actual story and the character of Lee Jong-soo that... I, I, I don't know, like, it feels like there's some... Par- like, there's some like something happening in parallel there, like, where if he just tried a little bit like she had, <laughs> he would argue... You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it, it just feels kind of crazy that we have someone going absolutely nowhere in the film in question at the character that is and yet in the film's creation we have someone going somewhere really fast yeah through success which just goes to show that's actually possible funny that isn't it craziness <laughs> i mean what what a, what life can can bring right i mean one day you've never auditioned for a role and then you're mm-hmm. waking up on a plane to Cannes Film Festival to give a bunch of interviews about your movie. Um, wildness. Uh, Crazy. Yeah. So she says about Jaime that um, Jaime's independent outside and strong uh, outside, but lonely on the inside. Very lonely. Um, but she feels like she's not like some kind of failure, right? She's trying to take one step forward each day. And uh she says of burning that burning taught me how to be friends with loneliness and that 
what a, what a crazy lesson to learn on your first first role of she says that she learned to accept someone rather than act them that she first had to not try to i don't know how to express this i guess like not try to like pretend or portray someone that she she like accepted this character into herself i guess and accepted and uh all the the flaws and everything um that was a really cool statement um and then uh probably the most well known at least to our audience uh Steven Yoon uh plays Ben the en- enigmatic Ben in this movie and i think there will be much discussion about Ben um oh boy much much oh discussion boy, about that? Ben um yeah i think if i may just interject oh, very quickly because i want to bring i want to bring something up about Steven Yoon that i think is actually going to be rather relevant to his character in a small way um now, Stephen Ewan is actually not his real name. It's his stage mm. name. Uh, his real name, and I could be mispronouncing this, is Ewan Sang-yop. Um, So I just want you to keep that in the back of your mind when we get to discussing about Ben. Um, also, another th- a, 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 a parallel fact to that, something I googled just before we started this, because I was very curious, is Ben a common Korean name? And the answer to that, based on the baby-name.kr <laughs> website, from what Google tells me, is no. Because yeah. between 2008 and 2022, only four people in Korea, uh, presumably South Korea, that is, um, were named Ben. So this isn't like, because I know in England, like we have the name Lee, for example, like as a first name, not as a surname. And that's where I just sometimes uh, feel like, okay, just double check. Because... That's going to be relevant to a talking point I'm going to bring up soon, both Stephen Ewan having a, a stage name, the name of Ben itself, and also something that's related to Parasite mm-hmm. um, and the general idea of, how should we say, like anti-US, uh, anti-Western sentiment. Just just keep that in mind. You might already have an idea of where I'm going with that, but I felt that was worth bringing up. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I should have mentioned, by the way, before about... Um, um, uh, Jian Jong So's roles are the role since Burning. She was in uh, uh, a Korean film called The Call. She was in uh, Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon, uh, which I think is a Hollywood movie. Yeah, American fantasy film. Uh, so she's she's been to Hollywood uh, and and acted in a movie there. And I know she had. I didn't get to read this interview, but I know she's given interviews about like the differences right between acting on in films and in Korea, uh, you know, film this, this whole, the movie, by the way, set in, in Paju, uh, was mostly filmed in Paju as well. Uh, but, but the differences between that and like acting in, uh, in Hollywood, um, but Steven Yoon, uh, you brought up very relevant points. Um, everybody knows him probably from the walking dead. Uh, he's also been in, uh, he had a, a small role, a funny role in, um, uh, Bong Joon-ho's, uh, Okja, which is the movie he directed a couple years before Parasite. By the way, Okja, fantastic. Really great movie that everyone should see. Maybe Jake Gyllenhaal's best role of all time. <laughs> I just want to wow. like, uh, certainly his best comedy role. I, the Jake Gyllenhaal character in that movie is, um, 
he plays like uh like on TV, you know, he's one of the like, I don't know, like a Steve Irwin, Jeff Corwin nature types. You know, he's always wearing safari gear and stuff, but he's an absolute shithead off camera. Just a huge asshole uh, and incredibly funny. Um, fantastic, fantastic character. Uh, Okja's great. I, I loved Okja. Great family film, I think. Um, uh, but Steven Yoon, we're talking about. And then, of course, Minari, uh, which came out last year and was nominated for best best foreign film, I think. I don't know. Did, did you know if Steven Yeun won anything for that? I actually don't know. I, I haven't checked. You're assuming I pay attention to <laughs> anything, really. <laughs> like what happens? It what happens in media circles and you know, like <laughs> award ceremonies. Are, I I only have the vaguest idea half the time of what's going on. So the honest answer is, couldn't tell you, my good sir. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot he was in Space Jam: A New Legacy. <laughs> I forgot well, he was. In every, well, I've. Everyone makes mistakes. Oh my goodness. Um, he's also in the Korean... Nope. Yeah, no. Is this a Korean film? Derek Cho directed Mayhem. I don't know where... I don't know the or, or country of origin of that movie. And Minari... Um, oh, that's an American uh, film as well. So that would not have been a foreign film. And it's also 2020. So um, let's see the accolades it won. Uh, Golden Globes. It did win Best Foreign Language Film. Okay, so I guess even though it's it's an American movie, it's it's subtitled. So there you go. Movies indecipherable sometimes how they award these things. Um, so, I thought you were just afraid of them in general. Then when you said they're indecipherable, I mean, have you seen some of the fucking shit we've covered? <laughs> movies are indecipherable. Um, okay, so and Stephen Yoon, some interesting things about about him or that he has said. Um, so. This will become relevant, uh, more relevant post spoilers and things like that. And as you summarize the film, but like the casting of director Lee here for uh, like uh, him selecting Stephen Yoon to play Ben is like, I mean, I just think it's, it's just a master stroke because what he wanted from Ben is someone who was Korean, you know, of Korea, but cosmopolitan, worldly, uh, above sort of your kind of typical everyday Koreans. And that comes across in even the way Steven Yoon speaks Korean, because Steven Yoon was raised, you know, he was born in Korea, but and he spent a little bit of time in Canada, but largely raised in America. Um, so he's, you know, considers himself, I think, a, a Korean American person for like um and had to relearn, you know, not from the ground up, but really reimmerse himself in Korea and Korea, the Korean language for the movie. But just the way that he talks, right? I mean, I've heard from from people that that speak Korean, like the dialect and everything, it comes across as that way, like someone who has left Korea and been elsewhere. Uh, the accent, the way of speaking, uh, yeah. all that kind of thing. Um, and that's just Steven Yoon's real life, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so the fact that yeah. like he didn't have to teach anybody 
how to carry themselves that way, how to talk that way. But like they just grabbed that real experience in Steven Yeun um, is so cool. And like, I just think like, wow, how perfect. Right. And he, he really does come across as someone like he's, he said that they were going for someone who is kind of beyond traditional Korean film archetypes, very mysterious. And I think they, they crushed that. And, you know, and this is just me in American, like imagine, I don't know, I, a Korean person watching, watching the movie. I also think they probably succeeded there. Um, and so just the authenticity that he was like able to, to get from you and a different kind of matter uh, is the fact that Steven Yoon read a lot of uh, Nietzsche for this role to prepare, mm. which is fascinating to me. And like an interviewer asked him, like, so why? Like, I heard about this. Like, why did you do this? And, you know, to to paint with a really broad brush and to really just be reductive. Nietzsche in books like the uh, genealogy of morals, uh, basically this is like, well, kind of society and the rules that govern it, particularly the moral norms, it's just a game. It's just arbitrary. It's just this system that people feel like they have to play in and be a part of. But you can operate above that. And Yoon is reading that and he's saying like, okay, like this is, this is what I have to absorb to play Ben, right? Like Ben is someone who lives above, above the system. He lives outside of, of things that govern anyone like responsibilities. Mm, Uh, mm. And you basically have absolute power in a way at that point. And the only way to react to someone like that, according to Yoon in the interview, the only way is to either respect them or you hate them. Uh, And so I just, yeah, I found that it just so interesting. Right. Um, Thoughts on that. Oh, well, it's, it's, as you say, pitch perfect casting. Like you get someone who has that authenticity of having spent so much time in the West and coming back. And this again ties into what I'm going to talk about uh, with respect to Ben's identity and also, as I say, the anti-Western undercurrent in the film. I mean, we brought up Trump before. Now, joke as I might about the Home Alone thing, I think that, again, without going too ahead of myself here, uh, the inclusion of Trump beyond like all of his speechifying, like, his complete bollocks, basically, about like you know youth employment or whatever, mm. it was very specifically chosen. Convenient and lucky that it existed at the time, but very specific. It wasn't just, in my view, oh, uh, how nice that's, that he, you know, he's been gamming off on the TV again and we needed a ranged lunatic to, you know, pad out like mm-hmm. some background noise. No, there's there's a very specific reason that he's in there, but I'll not get into that right now. But yeah, Stephen Ewan, absolutely spot on for this role. Um, and final things I'll say before you do the summary, just sort of big picture thoughts. Um, so uh, Lee Chang Dong, like Yu Ah-en is giving an interview about many things, right? But he's talking about director Lee and, you know, his style and stuff like that. And 
he's saying <laughs> that the creative process was so crazy because it was like, you know, everybody read the script beforehand that he'd written. But when they got there, you know, Lee was like, well, I don't know what's going on here. There is no definitive this. This is what happened. And this is what we're going to do. But let's find something together. He refused to simplify or to outline or to anything like that for the crew. Um, and just strikes me as this incredibly organic process, like really from the original writing, like letting things bloom and and fold out and and you know discovering all sorts of things that maybe you didn't even think about earlier. Um, and it reminds me a lot of my wife's creative process as as a painter, um, kind of bringing things into the world uh, more in that way and less like, here's what I'm going to do. One, two, three. Now I've done it. Uh, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. And I just will give a final quote here from Lee about burning, specifically about like, I think maybe someone was asking him like, so what really happened? Just <laughs> think mm. we might be coming back to it. Like, what, <laughs> oh, we what will. really happened? Um, and and he so he says here, the gaping holes in the chain of events, the missing piece from which we can never know the truth, um, alludes to the mysterious world we live in now, the world in which we sense that something is wrong, but cannot quite put a finger on what the problem is, and. I think this quote really just gets at a significant reason why I love this movie, why it really resonates with me um, on a couple different ways. I, I love these kind of ambiguous stories where, you know, you can try to construct a narrative within them, but nothing ever quite fits correctly because it i don't know just something about that like feels authentic to the world and i just love that he says like that the world now is both a mystery and that for him there's this pervasive sense that something is wrong in the world something is gnawing at him nagging at him something is not not right about existence right and but but we don't really know how to point out what it is, how to say there it's this, how to define it, how to isolate it. Uh, And I just feel that incredibly strongly as a human being. And so, yes, (laughs) like, Oh, and and it's just uh, that quote. Like, I don't want to say it's the essence of burning. I don't want to distill it too much, but like, I just I feel that that is burning is shot through with all those sentiments. Yeah, agreed hundred percent with you there. It <clears throat> it is a film like is really about the ennui of existence, like that. You know, especially if, as I say, like you're of that creative mindset, and not specifically a writer. I should stress just that if you feel creatively inclined, um, about like losing yourself a little bit, um. And also, I'd say maybe even to some extent about mental illness as well. Um, but yeah, that that it. God, we're going. Out, we've got so much to talk. About I know. Up soon, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> hey. Well, 
Oh, actually, no, I know exactly where I can begin. Um, even though this is a mild spoiler, but when um, uh, when Lee Jong Su is in Haney's apartment and he's jerking off, um, is that the titular burning right there? You now you you've really done it. You've just <laughs> you've <laughs> you've soiled the sheets of this podcast. <laughs> I and I I told you that joke was going in eventually. I just dislike it so much. I dislike it so much. Uh, I have to have a break now and reset. Uh, so I, I'm going to walk away from the microphone temporarily. I'll be right back. You know, I have no apologies for that joke. That's all I could think of. I'm getting my immaturity out of the way early so I can start talking about the more serious elements of the film. <laughs> but I just couldn't resist. It was going to happen. Uh, Doc has probably gone to the local... Um... <laughs> he's, yeah, he's, he's probably gone to the local Walmart or something, or Walgreens, fat matter, just... Not for medicine, just for alcohol, because I know they sell booze at the pharmacy over there. <laughs> I need me some medicinal whiskey to deal with <laughs> the burning. And he's like, that's a different thing, sir. No, I meant talking about the film! <laughs> God. He has actually left, by the way, just to knit for a bathroom break, so we'll be right back, folks. I have returned. Welcome back. While you were gone, I made a couple of jokes that you were going to the local Walgreens to get yourself a um, medicinal uh, whiskey <laughs> to cope. Uh, I wish Walgreens sold whiskey. I'm sh- I am sure I've been to the US and they sold al- alcohol at Walgreens. Or am I no, just no, not- they, am I they right definitely this- sell beer. Um, and ah, right. I think some Walgreens sell wine. It depends on the state, but th- they can't sell like you know bourbon or whiskey or or rum i mean anything beyond beer and wine you have to go to a specialty liquor store to obtain i see right fair enough then um but yeah i'm ready to pick up whenever you are my all friend right. uh, so take it away well why don't we move on from all that then and <laughs> you can uh you can summarize the film so is this going to be are, are you going to walk us through the whole movie or just give us the tease I'm going to give the tease, I reckon. Okay. In part because I could tell you the plot of the whole movie. It's not like the, you know, I can't relate the events as they happen, but that feels like inconsequential to like mm. understanding the film. Uh, you think of it this way, right? Like when it comes to spoilers, generally speaking, I am of the opinion that not all spoilers are as equally devastating. Some of them aren't even all that bad. Because it's not the question of learning if a thing happens, but why it happens, and then also in turn what it means mm-hmm. that is most important. So giving the giving like the the tease, I think yeah. it's probably not yeah. a bad idea. I feel like there's one thing that there's I think is one spoiler. I think the ending is like if you were gonna withhold anything, that's the thing to withhold. But I think the rest of it is is fair game. Um, in terms of our non-spoilery summary only. Yep. All right, then. So on that note, I'll introduce this story. But as such, um, our lead character, our protagonist, Lee Jong-soo, 
Uh, he is uh, an odd job person. He does deliveries and stuff like that. He's a crappy like farmer's truck or whatever. Um, and completely by chance, some might even say a twist of fate, look of the cards, whatever you want to call it, uh, he runs into someone named Hamie. Now, that's actually someone he knew from school when he was younger. Um, but he doesn't recognise her. Um, apparently she's had plastic surgery. Note. You know, by the note. way... Oh, go ahead. Maybe you're going to say the same thing I am. Note, by the way, that if you were transcribing this, a number of these words that I'm saying, I would be putting in either italics or bold for emphasis, <laughs> such as the word apparently. <laughs> oh, okay. So just keep, just interesting, keep that in mind. Interesting, interesting. Uh, uh, did you know... Uh, I did not know this, um, but that uh, a third or even as high as estimated 50% of Korean women ages 19 to 29 have had plastic surgery. That is actually quite shocking. Staggering. But I will, we'll get into it later, but yeah, like Haruki Murakami has, as I say, been criticized for some of his uh, depictions of women in some of his stories. And one could certainly take a look on how Amy's viewed in this film, but we'll get into oh, that. Yeah, this is I, I know what you mean. I'm going to try to defend Amy because I, I don't I actually have a problem with it. her in this movie. Um, I I don't have a problem with it. I I just thought it was worth yeah. noting. Uh, but anyway, oh, we'll get back. To I that I forgot to say this. Um, I think the Murakami story is actually loosely based off of a, uh, funnily enough, William Faulkner short story, also also was, called Barn Burning. He's also mentioned in yes, this film indeed. a couple of times as well. I, I didn't mention it before, if only because I know nothing about William Faulkner. Um, I, I, I've never well, read, like, so my wife could tell you more. Um, I The only thing I know is uh, that he's uh, a gargantuanly famous and well-regarded uh, Southern author. I've been to his house because I went to graduate school in Oxford, Mississippi, which is oh cool did he uh did he make you like uh supper <laughs> while you were there did you have a couple of drinks out rocking out the yeah, rocking on the uh the chairs on the front lawn well and all that? Um, we didn't because he's been dead for for many many years oh that's <laughs> that's always your excuse for that god damn it um doc. no and and we would have definitely had some differing values on things like slavery and what have you um but but I but I have been to is it called I've now forgot is it Rowan Roanoke yeah Roanoke is what his estate's called. Um, uh, actually, one of my work pictures that I have um email signatures is me at Roanoke from back in the day when I was much thinner <laughs> and younger. Is, is that is that is that you uh, leaning down over his grave and giving the peace <laughs> sign? It might as well be. It's me reading Plato leaning against a, a pillar. Very dumb, pretentious Ooh. picture. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. So he also like I don't know if he wrote everything like this, but he's very kind of like the the sort of again being super reductive about famous people. Uh, the, the short version of what I know about him is that like writing stream of consciousness style. Uh, you know what I mean, like such that you might not know whose perspective at different times in the book that you are reading from. Uh, and Absalom, Absalom is a famous thing. Uh, Sound and Fury, uh, famous uh, Faulkner works. So yeah, William Faulkner. No one needs us to tell about William Faulkner, I don't think. Um, please continue. I, I apologize for interrupting. 
It's fine. Uh, you just need to get me that work picture of you just leaning over his grave and giving the the you know the piece. I will. Anyway, anyway, so um, yes, he bumps into Amy. Now she's doing a promotion for like a street lottery of some sort. Um, keep that in mind, by the way, <laughs> that he meets her during a lottery. Um, as it turns out, and they end up like trading contact details. He obtains a pink watch, which he gives to her as a gift. Uh, this is from the lottery itself. Um. Turns out she's going to Africa. She's going to bless the rains down there. Yeah, I had to get that joke. Yeah. Um, and as a result, while she's away, uh, she wants Lee Jong Su to look after her cat. Can um, I just say again? I think it says it just on. says so much about her character to me. When you stop and think about, there's a person who's never been to Africa, and she's going to Africa by herself. To Africa by herself. Uh, kind of just insane when you think about it. Yep. Um, we later learn that specifically it's Nairobi Airport, so that will be Kenya she's mm-hmm. going to, but she doesn't specify Africa or rather anywhere in Africa. No friends to go to Africa with. Just, yeah. Very, like, lonely person, I think. Indeed. Um, so, um, you know, the. They, like, you know, while this is also happening, uh, Jong Su's father, like, gets embroiled with some sort of uh, legal bullshit, uh, which means that Jong Su is being forced to keep an eye on the farm. Um, but he does manage to pass by Hamie's apartment, um, where he manages to, like, catch her with her. They, you know, <laughs> they have an intimate moment. A high five. <laughs> they share a I warm think it was more handshake. A lo-fi. <laughs> I, think, I think it was more a low yeah. five, depending on what, how you would describe that. But but anyway, uh, Amy departs and John. Sue, that's why like, the that's why the cat, cat never appeared. He was Boyle was too scarred from seeing their sexual activities. Like I can never face you, John Sue. Uh, there's a joke I can make here, but I'm not <laughs> going to do it for the sake of taste. I'll just leave you to, uh, at home to imagine what that might have been. But anyway, <clears throat> um, so yeah, the cat by the way is named Boyle. Apparently, according to Amy, the cat was found uh, next to the boiler in the uh, apartment block she lives in. Hence the name, bit Creative. strange, whatever. Yeah, moving on. Uh, so he, he, this is also the point where I mentioned before that he starts jerking off in her apartment. Um, I should note, by the way, that this has a wonderful cooler shot moment where he's doing that while looking out the window at a radio tower. Um, so he's just wishing his erection could be as giant as that, I guess. Well, listen, I mean, you joke, right? But, But I think it's interesting, actually, that like, he is doing that, not like looking at pictures of her, but maybe you could just say he's fantasizing about her, but I actually think it's interesting that he's like behind a window, like looking up at the skyline and uh, just the, the wide open sky and the, and the city and everything, you know, it's sort of, I don't know, you could argue probably that it can represent like things that he feels like he'll never be able to attain. You know, he's got the farm he's inherited. His dad is a, Getting busted for assault. Uh, you we'll, know. we'll we'll get back to that, but he does it does very specifically frame that tower, which I think plays into the actual mm. uh, sex scene itself, in which it's very awkward. It is, um, and I'm again put a pin in all this. Many, pins, but not like not like unintentionally. Joke. You know what I mean? Not like uh, I don't know, like a video game sex scene where you thought the the people were like, <laughs> yeah, we did it. This is hot, and it's just super awkward, like. This is what it's supposed to be. 
where I finally accumulated enough relationship points to make it happen after doing a couple of match three puzzles. It's, it's no Wolfenstein, but it's close. Wolfenstein? Oh, actually, no, Wolfenstein does have a sex scene. I remember that now. Anyway, moving on. <clears throat> so, um, eventually, she calls and says that she's um, back. Uh, she was just stranded for a bit longer than expected due to a bombing at Nairobi Airport. And when Jong Su goes to get her, this is the point where she arrives with Ben, whom we've mentioned before. And Ben is, of course, charming, handsome, tall, fit, wealthy. So, so handsome. Know. Incredibly handsome. Mm-hmm. Yep. And if I might be quite honest, I think this is probably the point where I will leave the summary other than just to say that Jong Su is concerned that something's up with uh, him and Hamey. Like, something's not right. But of hmm. course, is That's, that concern... Oh, do we really want to leave the summary here? Because I think it is... Uh, well, uh, whether we do or not, I think we should say that up to this point, burning sounds like, and very much is, a sort of uh, sad love story. Um, but it becomes a, a very different genre of film. A much more... Uh, tense experience for the viewer uh i'll say uh because certain things happen to certain characters uh and there are there are mysteries uh and and there is much much tension uh that explodes uh in the later part of the film and i'm not talking mm-hmm. about another scene of jong su in the apartment Hey. Oh, that's true. <laughs> oh, oh. Oh. Uh, so I suppose I'll, I'll continue a little bit further on in that case then. Um, so they, there are moments scattered beyond this where Ben, Haney, and Jong Su are hanging out. Uh, one of which is at his farm, uh, where they have the moment where they smoke the marijuana that we mentioned before. Um, then this is where Ben tells Jong Su that he has an odd hobby, which is that he burns abandoned greenhouses every so often. Uh, noting, of course, that Jong Su's neighborhood is absolutely chock full of them. Um, why he's doing that? Excellent question. Not a clue. Um, oh, I have a clue. So that's part- I have a clue. Uh, oh, 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 uh, oh. Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, we'll okay, get to that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying I have no idea. I'm saying that the like it's not presented as something that Jong Su quite right. Okay, okay, fair. Totally fair. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, so that's all happening. Uh, you know, apparently he might, he says like he loves Amy, but he's also very cruel to her because she like has a moment of feminine expression where she takes um, her sh- shirt off and just like, you know, has a little dance around in the sunlight. It's, it's not like for titillation. That particular oh scene. man. It's meant to be feminine. Yeah. Feminine well, expression. it's that. And it's also, I think has everything to do with her Africa trip and this idea that she talks about even before she goes of uh, the great hunger uh, or so the little hunger and the great hunger. And we'll talk, I think, a lot yes. more about that um, when we get into spoilers. But I think it's, um, for all those prudes out there, they're like, why are they showing titties for no reason? It's like, there's there's a lot of, of reason um, for, for it. Uh, so don't, don't get all mad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and that's the point where uh, Jong Su starts criticizing her 
But doing that, saying like, why do you act like such a whore or something to that effect? Why do you undress so easily in front of men? Only whores do that. It's like the second time, maybe there's more. There's like that moment sticks out. And then when one time Ben is cooking for them and they're out smoking together and he's like, have you ever thought about why he's dating you? Um, So there's, yeah, there's some, some moments when he's unbelievably cold and cruel to her. For someone he's in love with, he's yep. obviously incredibly jealous. Yep, that he is. And so after that, like, this is where the film, like, or where, rather where I would say jong Su himself in a number of respects starts to unravel a mm. bit uh, because he's keeping an eye out for all the greenhouses burning down. Uh, he eventually manages to go to Haney's apartment, but she won't answer his phone, won't let him in. When he finally does manage to get in, thanks to some assistance from the landlady, uh, the apartment is mostly empty and there's no evidence even of the cat still being there. Um, and this is also the point where jong Su starts stalking Ben mm-hmm. as well. Starts following around everywhere. Uh, by chance, by the way, he just happens to catch up with him at various points. It's not like he's constantly observing his movements, but still he, he does follow him places. Um, like, And then there's the pep, like This is all never stays out right but there's the insinuation that maybe ben is cheating on amy because there's a woman who appears at this restaurant that he's at uh but there's no obviously evidence of that it's all entirely paranoia um <clears throat> but ben says like he hasn't heard from her in a while um, also someone keeps calling jong su and not mm-hmm. not talking that's a, a thing that's out there yes it is um, and eventually, uh, Jong Su finds himself at a uh, party that Ben is hosting, completely by chance, where he finds uh, Boyle there, yeah. <laughs> um, inexplicably. Uh, also finding the pink watch that he gave Taney in a uh, chest inside the uh, well, the bathrooms. By the way, I should note this is the second time that Ben has been sorry that Jong Su has been to Ben's apartment because uh, he actually visits earlier on in the film as well. Um, under more friendly circumstances, not when there's a party going on between like all the rich people. God, uh, Ben's friends. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And then the the film the film basically like the final thing I'll say is at that point Jung Su asks to meet Ben in the countryside. Yeah. And I will say nothing more than that. Yeah. Woo. Um burning. So good. <laughs> I've I've been reliving <laughs> no. parts of it in my head as you as you talk about it. Um, I've been pouring petrol on the fire. Hey, 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 there ah. you go. Yeah, I guess so. So now let's uncork the the spoiler bottle from here on in. You know, you have been warned. We're gonna like totally like just there is there is no stone we will not unturn. Everything is fair game. You have been warned. Go watch the film if you haven't. In case you didn't know that we think you should watch the film, you should definitely watch the film. Um, and then. You know, if you don't want spoilers, stop the pod now and, and it'll keep. Uh, but yeah. yeah, all right. Here we go. Talking points. Um, do you want to kick it off? Uh, up to you, my friend. I'm happy to. Yeah, sure. Away. Why don't you you lead us off? Well, I've been hinting at it uh, thus far, and it's probably one of the more minor elements of the film, but it's still worth noting is the anti-Western sentiment that seems to be bubbling as an undercurrent there. Um Let's talk, let's go back to Ben as a character for a moment. I mentioned before that Ben is not a Western name. Now, in Parasite, uh, which is arguably a lot similar to this film in a number of ways, there was the character of Nathan Park. He was the uh, you know the head of the Park family, the rich family in the film. 
And one thing that I noticed a lot of commentators said, and is absolutely true, that is, of course, Nathan is not a Korean name. Uh, it's a name that he has adopted uh, in order to be more successful in a Western-driven um, capitalist world, business world. And Ben, I think, seems to have that same thing, where as the target of Jong-Soo's, like, ire and jealousy... Like, it seems that part of Ben's success seems to be that he's not really a true Korean in some way. Like, this is all very, like, undercurrent and more one of the more minor parts of the film. But between that, um, the, the class elements, the fact that he doesn't seem to specify what he does as a job. Um, <clears throat> and also, like, uh, Jong-Soo's own origins is working close to the border um, as a farmer, like, being more down to earth. Like... The, I think from John Sue's perspective, he sees Ben as a threat in part that seems to be backed by his, um, like the Western like elements mm. that like um prop up his life. Um, this is also why, as I say, that uh, Trump's appearance in the film, as much as I hate to say about that fucking wanker, <laughs> is important <laughs> because it's showing the ongoing long arm of Western influence in Korea, which has been a theme of a number of the of those films like in parasite that was a part of it as well especially with the uh the um native american um role play scene towards the end of that film um which of course in itself was something imported for america so yeah it's it's a small detail a little bit of an undercurrent but i think it's noteworthy that like this is also why i think the adaptation of this from Haruki Murakami's story like gets that Korean centric element in there that there is a lot of like anti-American sentiment and anti-Western sentiment for a number of Koreans for many good reasons such as of course like fad for example uh, which by which I don't mean you know like a hobby that you could suddenly get into to be popular with your friends like yo-yos I of course mean uh, the missile system that's deployed there as a deterrent to China which has been quite controversial in not South Korea for what I understand and with good reason so yeah, just a small detail. Also, again, ties back into Stephen Ewan himself, who of course has um, like his assumed name, his stage name, rather than his real mm-hmm. name. Again, because he's w- trafficking and walking in a Western world where he does that to be accepted rather than in an ideal world, just having his own name wherever he is. Yeah. You know, one of the things he said that really like just smacked me right in the face, like just hit me like a ton of bricks because I'm a white man, cis, het, I don't kind of go through the world and travel through it and experience it the same way that, you know, people from other parts of the world, people that look differently, that uh, that are different from me, do. Yoon said a difference that acting in America versus acting in, in burning was that when he was acting over there, he never felt like he had to explain himself just Mm. as a character being in a role. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, well, how is an Asian man going to fit into this role? Um, How do we do this in, in an Asian way? Or like, you know, all that kind of thing. It's just like, he just is, is, home at home and he is just himself and he doesn't have to apologize or explain anything about himself or his character like in the film 
that's not even a, a part of the creative process. He just is, you know, he just plays Ben. Um, and that, that speaks to a lot of what you're talking about, I think. Yeah. And in Jong Su's eyes, of course, the uh, successful Korean man uh, works with an, uh, with a Western name. Like, you know, <laughs> say it's not, it's not the primary part of the film by any means, but it's, it's there. It's a little bit of an undercurrent. And it seems like a common element to a number of these films from Korea that do comment on class. And I thought it was worth bringing up for the same reason that Nathan Park's name is relevant in Parasite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, very cool. Very interesting. Like, um, I guess the first thing I want to talk about then is um, Little Hunger and Great Hunger. You know, since we since we just Ooh. discussed it. Um, and this will tie into themes of class, I'm, I'm sure. But um. So hi Bing. Um again going to Africa. Uh one of the tribes, I guess, that she is um going to encounter or visit or has learned about um have uh these dances where in this particular dance they they express little hunger and great hunger. And Little Hunger is that kind of uh, physical hunger, you know, just physical desires that we experience, right? Whether it's for food, water, uh, sleep, shelter, sex, um, any of that kind of thing that can be satiated, I think, with a physical act. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, and that hunger, you know, she expresses by like having her arms forward swaying. But she lifts her arms and continues to sway to signify the great hunger. And the great hunger is hunger that human beings have um, to, to be given some kind of purpose or meaning for their actions or for their life as a whole. Something larger than themselves to, to satisfy uh their sense of, I don't know, that uh, they want to belong to something, right? And not feel lost and, and homeless in this existence, in this world. So they have a great hunger. Um, and, you know, I think you could probably argue that, like, the great hunger, uh, uh, you can't really talk about the great hunger until the little hunger is satisfied. Um, Maslow would agree with you yeah, on that. right. Master of Triangles. <laughs> I don't understand. What are you talking about? Maslow's, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a triangle. Oh, right. It. Yes, of course. Uh, right. Um, Dostoevsky too has a has a thing in the Brothers Karamazov where someone wants to talk about you know giving the peasants Christ and. Someone's, you know, another character is like, they need bread <laughs> before they can think about that shit. Oh, you know. Or if you're mini on is cake. Of right, course. of course. Um, naturally. So what is this, you know, this is a cool concept and all, but what does it have to do with with the film at large? Well, I think the film, you know, like we said, is a film that is just so starkly about class, right? I mean, Jung Soo and Jaime are, are poor. They're not like dirt poor, but they're, they're sort of, I think relatably to a lot of people, 
uh, pretty poor w- without a lot of means, certainly compared to Ben, whose job is to play. Uh, <laughs> as he tells them, there's no difference between work and play. I play. Um, who Ben driving around a Porsche, able to uh, you know travel the world, wear fancy suits, have an incredibly nice apartment. Those two are, are poor. They come from a different class of, of society. And, you know, they are, they have, the I think, the little hunger. They have, I think they have both of them. They also have the great hunger. I think mm-hmm. Jaime is uh, a great example of someone with just a very deep, gnawing great hunger. And I think that her dance, as you talked about the the night that they are at all at Jong Su's house smoking weed, um, that dance that she does, I think, is her own kind of great hunger dance. It's her own like way of expressing through dance, kind of the things she can't express with words, the problems in her life. That she's terribly alone, even with Ben, even someone who's like, you know, maybe satisfying her kind of material desires. And she feels like, oh, I can, you know, can climb uh, the the ladder of status with this guy. Uh, Like she still has these deep hungers for for something greater, something more, Mm -hmm. something that like it felt like. Maybe in the beginning of the film, maybe you could possibly see happening, like being satisfied between her and Jung Su, but it just it, it was not to be for for many reasons. Um, yeah, is it is it not also extremely appropriate that that dance is happening at uh, Jung Su's farm, which is revealed to be on the South North Korean border <laughs> to the demilitarized zone? In other words, she is a person on the threshold of two different worlds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think another significant part about this little, uh, this, these concepts is like, you know, Ben is not immune from the great hunger. I think Ben, I mean, we see him, he certainly has no little hunger. I don't think. I mean, he's everything he could ever want. He has Um, Mm -hmm. every material good and every material desire could be satisfied. But there's a scene. I mean, there's a couple different things, right? I mean, there's the whole notion of burning greenhouses so that he can feel the base right in his heart that reverberates his bones. Like. That's like this transcendent experience for him this like meaning giving experience whatever you think burning greenhouses Mm -hmm. is um that unlawful action like shoots through his whole body this like like this uh thing that satisfies his great hunger uh and and there's some i just really quickly i'll just say there's another scene that i think is incredible like framing uh, do you talked about, you know, Jung Su following him around? Um, there's a scene where like Ben drives to like into the countryside 
like into Jong Su's country, right? Into the sticks, basically. And Jong Su's <laughs> following him around and sees him drive off the road and park next to this lake. I think it's an artificial lake, but he parks his incredibly fancy porch next to this lake and he's just staring over the lake. And Jung Su creeps up behind and he's on the other side of the Porsche. And the camera then you get sort of like a sidelong shot. And on the left, there's Jung Su sort of rising up on one side of the Porsche, the Porsche dividing Ben and Jung Su and Ben facing the lake. Uh, and I think this is like, I don't know, to me, like the third time or fourth time watching this movie, what I got was like, is representational of like just kind of where they were in the world, right? Like Jung Su is, there's a, a, a fancy Porsche between he and Ben appropriately. Like mm. there's that material dividing line that like wealth, there's a massive wealth gap between them. Like he will never have barring some sort of miracle. Uh, what Ben has, uh, he, a brand new yes. car. You'll never have his little hunger satisfied. Uh, but even Ben, who has had his little hunger satisfied, is still the way I read him looking out over the lake was like, there's places that he can't go. There's borders he can't cross. Like there's that some he's looking at a totally still body of water, something completely serene. And it's like mm -hmm. represents like a state of being that he'll that he can't achieve, like because there's there's, you know, if Ben was whole, he wouldn't burn greenhouses. There's something sort of lacking in him that he can't fill completely without burning these greenhouses every so often. And yep. I think it's like represents sort of a yearning for him for that. And so like that's to me like this cool like frame this portrait of like the different hungers and kind of their relationship to each other jung su's relationship to all this stuff so yeah i know you're chomp champing at the bit to to get in here so go well you know what you're saying about like the unlawful action <clears throat> he is that is a person who has succeeded by the rules elevating him by following them i mean going back to the idea of him having a western name even adhering to that unspoken uh you know, truth of, well, it'll make you more likable to people. Wink, wink. Little things like that. And so him, of course, committing to doing an unlawful action is entirely why it gives him, you know, like, it gives him life and sustenance. Um, although I do find it funny that it's such a specific and petty thing that he's doing because there's a myriad of ways that criminal, like, the rich people can break the law, usually also while enriching themselves further. And I'm not, this is not me criticizing the story, uh, quite the opposite. I'm setting up for something I'm going to talk about later. Um, but it just seems awfully small scale of Ben to go for mm. that. Well, that is, of course, if you read as literal him burning mm. the greenhouses. Mm. And certainly, mm. I mean, it is heavily, heavily implied uh, from Jung Su's perspective that we see, like heavily implied that burning 
greenhouses means murdering young women that he's seeing. Ah, I see, I see. <laughs> Playing ignorant over there. You you know that. <laughs> no, no, I, I actually, I will freely admit I didn't, but that's because I have a completely different mm, interpretation. Okay, okay. Uh, well, here, let me just, let me but, lay out, so... um. So the greenhouses, right? Like that that night that he talks to Jung Su about them, you know, he's it's like, oh, there's there's and and you mentioned how this movie is became this story became very Korean and about Korea and about Korean youth. And mm-hmm. there's a line that uh Jung Su says that like Korea is full of Gatsby's, and that is about like Ben and wealthy people in Korea. And then you have Ben talking about greenhouses and he says Korea is littered with these greenhouses that nobody gives a shit about anymore. They're deserted. Society has deemed them worthless. And jong Su's like, you decide if they're worthless? And Ben's like, no, I just accept it. That's just what everyone has already decided. They're waiting to be burned down. And I think... And the, the fact that he says to him, like the next burn house actually actually came to your house to to scout out for greenhouses. And the next one is very near. Very, very near. And uh ah, and yes, you know, in the course, next and, and there's course. a scene later where Jung Su's like, you know, I didn't I've been checking for greenhouses and you didn't burn one down. I keep checking. And Ben's like, hmm, clearly you've missed it. Maybe it was too close to you. Uh to 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 for for you to even see that it's been gone now, right? And so there's this idea, right, that like the youth of Korea, like the majority of youth, like not the wealthy ones, but there's just like, and maybe even some of the wealthy ones, I guess, that like the kind of modern Korean culture and society, materialistic, you know, all the wealth coming in, the Western influence that you that you pointed out is like isolating human beings and like cutting them off from each other. And then you have, and Jaime is just like, just fits this to a T. I mean, she's isolated. She's lonely. She's in debt. She has no money. She's ghosted her family. You know, even though she's going to Africa, you know, she has all this credit card debt. She, Jung Soo becomes, you know, she has sex with them immediately. They become best friends. Like, she's like, ah, oh, he's my only friend in the world. He's the one who never leave me. You know, I trust him more than I trust anyone. Known him for like a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, she is just this atom floating alone and people like Ben uh, play and they prey upon people like this. Right. And, and they play with them for a little while and then they yawn at the party and they grow tired of them. Uh, and then they burn them down. They get rid and move on to the next. Mm. So yeah, it's heavily implied that Ben is this serial killer uh, and that he's every couple of months, dating a girl who is sort of, you know, just sort of in awe to be with him. Uh, and then uh, he is uh, burning them down, right? He's he's killing them. And, you know, that final, one of the final scenes where he's putting makeup on his new girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And she's shedding a tear. Um, I learned this week that the word for makeup in Korean is also the same word for cremation. Oh shit! <laughs> so, uh, it was like a uh, you could if if you read Ben as guilty, right? Um, because this is not. 
in any way sort of a slam dunk or straightforward. But oh no, there's no actual evidence yeah, of that. But if you read him, uh, it's like a, like a burial rite that he's performing on this girl. Yep. So yeah, so that's that's that I mean, theory of the case. Yep. Uh, I ha- I freely admit that did not occur to me. Um, I was reading the film at that point in a different mm-hmm. way, uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna play my cards a little closer to my chest before I get into that. Um, so I suppose then um, let me talk about the pain of writing, okay. the the pain of being a creative person because one of the parts of um, Burning's class. Um, examination and also just the examination of the world of work in general is it offers no it's very how should i say blunt about the fact that there is no um or very little reward to be found in actually being a creative person in terms of financial compensation um like there are like jong su for example like you know he wants to write um but he's stuck in poverty and the thing is he's he doesn't actually, you know, uh, end up coming out. Obviously, this is one of those stories where he writes a book and suddenly is extremely successful. Um, the creative spirit, like, you know, um, is not something that can be easily fostered in a capitalist society, as we see um, in the story itself. Uh, jong Su's creative ambitions are frequently um, <clears throat> countered by either, A, his father forcing him to take over the farm because his father gets in trouble, um, or just the fact that he himself like is not writing much, but it offers very little hope for the creative spirit. Uh, I think when I say that though, I think it's just more, shall we say, honest about it. Because the mm. pragmatic truth is that like there are a lot of people in the world who want to be creative. I think there's I saw a survey like about a number of like about school children who and what their career was. And in the past this would have been a variety of different things, like doctor, vet, you name it. But majority of them now want to be content creators, apparently. And Wow. You know what? You hear the tr- I, I this is entirely anecdotal, so I can't source this offhand. But my reaction to that is, in an ideal world, yes, we'd all be content creators if we wanted to be, or rather, we'd be whatever job we wanted mm-hmm. to do. But that's not going to be the case. Um, not everyone can be a content creator, um, even if they like have the personality or such to be that, you know. And then, in, in turn, or to, if they do do that, they might not necessarily be successful because again, capitalist society. Uh, this also, I think, is key. Why it's, why Ben's um, source of wealth is never explained. He doesn't say what his job is. We don't mm-hmm. know. But that's part of the point, though. For him, it is effortless just to be rich. Yeah. Uh, but for Jong Su, he's of course stuck in trying to come up with something to write about, which he does. Uh, and I think that's a part of my interpretation of the film, which I'll get to yeah. later. Um, that, that that happens just before the climax, where we actually see him start to fucking mm-hmm. write. <laughs> which is incredible like it's it's that lesson that everyone says like you are right fucking right do mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. um but that ties also into how i feel about my own life like in my time trying to learn to write that you know in an ideal world i would have become a published writer and become super wealthy and the and the reason for that is uh that hasn't happened is one i haven't written but two the odds of it happening are slim to none anyway like writers are the pittance generally speaking the average wage is what seven grand in terms of pound great british pounds um so it is it's it's essentially for the lucky and the privileged i would say uh, and i think that, that the film is very clear about that that while it's good that he is trying to be creative um it's also brutally honest about his chances at and also that in the end he is self-sabotaging about it as well yeah i can't decide 
and maybe there is no answer, like no definitive answer. Uh, but do, do you think the film, like, I guess is sympathetic with Lee Jong-soo? Like, do, do you find him likable? Like, I really go back and forth. I mean, because I think, I think in some ways he's cruel and pathetic. Um, and there's definitely ways you can read this where, like, he, you know, <laughs> commits a, a very great crime uh, at the end of this film. Um, but also, you know, you have uh, you are in doing interviews about it where he's talking about, like, seeing the director of the movie and the character and kind of trying to to channel him through it. And I mean, certainly I think the film is, is not like boo, poor people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think it's sympathetic to, to his plight and, you know, and understands all the sorts of pressures that, that he's under. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, what do you, what do you think the film, like, how did you come away? Or maybe I should say, how did you come away feeling about Lee Jong-soo? I think that it's blunt towards the reality of what he needs to do with his life. Um, that there, you know, that he should be doing more with like his creative element if he wants to at least try that because to solve the great hunger thing that you mentioned mm, before. Because mm-hmm. even if he isn't ultimately fis- fiscally successful with that, that's still, you know, as nourishment for the soul. Right. Um, but I'd also argue, and I've alluded to this before, that the argument can be made that maybe it is sympathetic to him because he's mentally ill. Mm. Okay. And that's again, I'm dancing around again, my big interpretation of this, because I can see it going one of two ways. Um, should I cut loose and uh, start I mean, it's, it's totally, totally up to you. Um, so I, it's funny, oh. I've never, like, it, it, as someone who is diagnosed, you know, with a couple different mental illnesses I'd, I'd never have thought about burning and, and mental illness i guess funnily enough um well okay let me put okay. it out there i at various points in this film i think a case can be made that characters are not real 100 percent. now 100 percent agree now now that's not to say that the characters are never real in the film let me put an idea out for you there you can make an argument i would say for example that Haney did exist before going to Africa, and then jong Su never saw her again. And the Haney we see afterwards is just a construct in his mind. Hmm. Okay. That's something you can okay. argue. Um, and a similar thing can also be applied to Ben. He exists at a certain point, um, maybe. I, I mean, admittedly, that would be contrary to the theory I put out uh, just a moment ago about Haney, because, of course, he's introduced to um, jong Su through her. But I am also again reminding you that there is a gamut here to be run of. You can argue at many different points when a character was there and when a character wasn't, and what interpretation of them you see. Because this is all, of course, through Jong Su's perspective. This entire film. Yeah, but um, save like there's to- like a small handful of scenes that are not, but like ninety seven percent of the movie is is from Jong yep. Su's perspective. Yes, correct. Um, and so I think that. You could also then make the argument that burning is about how mental illness can be an affliction, especially if suffered by people who are creative. Because 
when you do have that mindset, that imagination, it can become much your uh, like you know your own enemy, as it is a tool for you to fashion like fiction or music or you know worlds of people to live in. Sometimes you summon demons to torment yourself. Mm-hmm. I would say, and there's a lot of this film that speaks to like the artifice of storytelling as well. I mean, let's start laying some stuff out there. Just little little details that occurred to me. Uh, the fact that Jong Su beats Haney at a lottery mm-hmm. and wins a prize that he gives to her as a lottery that is his way of getting to, you know, um, know her better. Uh, the fact that she he doesn't remember her, but she says he she had plastic surgery. What if in turn, like, you know, as a mental construct, this is just how he pictured her? Right. Yep, there's that. Uh, Ben's entire existence can all so be explained in that way. Um, the cat, the fact that he never sees the cat in Hamie's apartment, sure. the fact that it is spectacularly clean uh, after she moves right. out. Or when, when another the person the... is there with him observing it, right? Yep, exactly. Um, I would even go so far as to make the analogy that the greenhouses are a representation of the blighted nature of Jong Su's creative spirit. Nothing is growing inside his mind except the poison of Ben's mm. presence. And that's what they're a metaphor for. And in turn, Ben threatening to burn down all the greenhouses uh, is to show that the longer he stays around, the more of a threat he is towards Jong Su ever being able to create anything ever again. That's hmm. just a small sample of the stuff I could talk about. So Ben is like a sort of toxin that is just his anger because he is the son of someone who's on trial for assault that and he's expressed to Ben uh whether or not you think Ben is real, right? He's Jung Su has told Ben like his his dad is a really angry person. So he's inherited maybe mm-hmm. that anger, and Ben is like a kind of a manifestation of of things that he's angry at, and he kind of can't stop yes, focusing on it and let go of it. Yep, I would say so. And then let's go further to that. Uh, what about um, when he says what to Haney? Why do you dress? Uh, why do you <clears> act <throat> like a whore? Mm-hmm. Because if he, if she is a mental construct in his mind through his own internalized misogyny, uh, then that's exactly why she acts that way. Because she acts as the way he thinks she does, you know? Right, right, right. So what I'm getting out with all this is you can either read the film as a, as how creative people like can sometimes be consumed by their own inner darkness, that the, their essentially their imagination is poisoned. Um, and you can see that like being something that's sprung upon him by also his class misfortune as well. Where... You know, he meets Ben, and then I will freely admit to having done this myself, not in not intentionally, of course, but sometimes, like, you know, you meet, say, a girl or whatever, and there's a guy, and you can't help but let your mind spiral out of control and think the most awful things about either or mm. of them, uh, which are completely untrue. You know, like, dark thoughts. Oh, so you're saying, okay, just to like- be clear, so I'm clear on what you're saying, so you... You ha- develop feelings for a girl, and then she shows up somewhere with a significant other. Something yeah, like okay. that, yeah. It, yeah. I think that I, w- I wouldn't say that's an, un- an uncommon response, no. but it's also obviously a very yeah. healthy one. Um, but I think that we also need only look at like the number of people who we would say are like very talented creatively who've suffered from mental illness, or dare I say, even taken their own lives. 
um, that you can kind of see that with Zhang Su, like, you know, I mean, also, just going back to the end of the artifice of things, um, literally just him finding Hamie's bracelet completely by chance. I know you said the there was the theory of Ben being a serial killer, and I'm not going to mm-hmm. dismiss that. His, the, yeah. uh, I think that's the entire It's in a drawer of then, knickknacks that... You know, if you think Ben is guilty, this these are like his trophies from the different ladies Indeed. that he has offed. Yep. Um, to which I would say, a bit silly of him to keep that in some in the bathroom where anyone can find. Well, it him. is. Uh, but then again, but as that's you all, said, but 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 but, but yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, not yeah, just using. Yeah. I just find it, it amusing. Is funny. And 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 why it makes me chuckle is, of course, that's also how Walter White got brought down in Breaking Bad. After everything he oh fucking did, it was just because he left a, he left that book in the bathroom. That oh, I forgot it. about that, Lord. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, but but that's why I'm thinking like that. All of this, all these fantasies that, uh, if they are indeed fantasies that John Sue is having, they speak of the artifice of an unimaginative creator, like a person who's dealing in cliches to process his own life. Like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I just met the girl at this little lottery thing and then I got her a lottery item and isn't that, like... And then, of course, the serial killer with the easily found trove of stuff. Um, and then I suppose that all culminate, or culminates in the ending of the film and when Jong-Soo could arguably be said to be set free. <laughs> Shall we talk about that? Shall we spoil it? Sure. Uh, yeah, I will just will say that... Um... I mean, I find your reading fascinating because um, it's one that, you know, I really haven't had on watching the movie. There's been, like, I think after seeing Parasite, right, if you've seen Parasite first, you almost can't help but mm-hmm. sort of have the end of that film and it's, it's uh, you know, imaginative or fantastical kind of ending. Oh, like, yes. Kind of, you read that on top of, what happens at the very end of burning that we're about to talk about. And so I think a lot of people have that interpretation. And then I certainly have watched it and thought, okay, at point X in the film, this scene, everything after this, I think you can call into question the authenticity of it, whether it like actually happened or whatever in the movie, but, and I've watched the film and thought everything is actually happening. Even like there's things that can't be mm-hmm. explained but like everyone's real and all this shit actually, but, but it did happen. Uh, just junk. Who doesn't know the answers to everything. So I've been hit with all kind of different ways of looking at it. And, and I want to say before we go any further that I think I'm, I'm <laughs> I'll bring up your favorite anime, uh, re zero. Oh no. <laughs> um, no, I, I'm okay. I with like, Re-Zero. I like re zero. Um, it's it's fine. So I think a lot of people at the time, you know, six years ago when that thing aired first season, um, a, a knock they I think a lot of people either consciously or unconsciously had against it was that a lot of things in the show after a certain something is revealed or whatever, like cease to have any meaning because they quote unquote didn't happen. Uh all the ah, shit that Subaru is going yeah. through. Oh, well, it doesn't matter because just in his head. Uh, it didn't happen in the empirical world uh, observable by by many. So it effectively doesn't matter. And I mean, I just want to like throw my hands up right now and just s- scream <laughs> because 
uh, that perspective is, I think, just really deeply misguided. And whatever you think about the reality or unreality of certain characters at certain points in this movie, I think, I think you agree with me, Shadon, that that existence or non-existence holds no bearing on the meaningfulness of what's happening in the movie as it relates to the characters themselves, even if they're real or fictional and what the movie's trying to say, what the movie is trying to get us to, to ask all these kinds of things. I, I think again, if you there, and there are some movies that pull the rug out from under you and you do leave thinking like, well, none of this was real. So I feel sort of cheated because nothing happened. So what's the point? Like what matters? And I mm-hmm. think like, if I man, that's wrong. If I may interject, <laughs> do you know? Do you remember when I made that right club joke uh-huh. before? So joke as I might, I I like doing this. I like making jokes, but also trying to derive some real meaning from them. The thing that I always took away from Fight Club, at least people's reaction to it, is that people didn't fucking get it. Like you had people idolizing Tyler, Tyler yeah. Durden, who was not real, but of course the very clear message was that he was the toxic masculinity of, of the lead character Jack expressed out there. Like, yes, he didn't literally physically exist, but all the things he did were awful and terrible. Um, now, okay, so back to burning anyway. Back to this. Let's reveal the ending of the film. And I'll just come out and say it. Uh, Lee Jong-Su stabs the ever-living fuck out of Ben. He does. He goes full pop-up pirate on him. Like, the man becomes a pincushion, and there's blood everywhere. And then he sets his Porsche light throws his clothes in there, strips naked, and gets back in his truck. And that's the end of the film. Yeah. So, so, okay, let's interpret this. I have two interpretations to this. And funnily enough, you know what you were saying about him being a serial, potentially being a serial Mm -hmm. killer? I'm going to open with this interpretation firstly. Let's make the assumption that Ben is not a serial killer, but he is a real person all the Mm -hmm. way through Mm -hmm. the film. He's just sort of like a... Even if you don't think he's a serial killer, right? Like, I think that there are some people that watch the movie and they're like, he has to be because of the sinister nature of his dialogue and the way he talks and everything. But like, again, I think like it comes through more maybe in the Korean than the subtitles is like, he is certainly cold, but it's more like he's aloof and affluent than really sinister, or at least... Maybe not more, more like is the wrong word because I'm speaking of like, this is the actual fact of the matter. There, there is a plausible reading of him as that, that, and if you think he's innocent, that's, I think, what you would, would see him as, is rather than deeply yeah. sinister. He's just a dickhead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. Like, 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 Ock, let's, let's go dope. with um, Occam's, like, you know, Occam's character mm-hmm. profile here. The simplest explanation is sometimes the right one. Now, Again, that's not to de- defuse or dismiss the theory that he is indeed a serial killer, because that makes the film an interesting film in its own right. But we also, of course, still have to condemn Jong Su's actions because he's acting without any real evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's the thing about vigilante justice. Eventually, you will kill an innocent person, even if you do get the right one occasionally. But anyway, um, so on the assumption that Ben is completely innocent and he does exist. So going back to my mental illness thing, all of Jong Su's flights of fancy, all of his internalized misogyny and rage uh, and anger at this man who has come into his life, uh, taken who he perceives as his woman, 
right? You know, and yeah. generally, generally waved his dollar bill dick in front of his face because he's just got so much money. Like, even if he is a bit of a prick, like that doesn't that does not mean he has to die, and therefore that's the that turns this into a tragedy that you know his imagination, mm-hmm. um, in the ways that I suggested before, has ultimately consumed him, uh, and it's turned him into an awful person and a murderer. So that's one way to look at it. But then, but then, let's flip this, turn this upside down. What if Ben is partially or mostly just a figment of his own imagination? Uh, that, like, you know, malaise, that um, something wrong with the world that is preventing him from being the creative talent he wants to be, preventing him from writing. You'll note that I said before that this scene, when Ben is murdered by Jong-Soo, follows shortly after Jong-Soo starts writing. In fact, the only time we see him writing in the film, for that matter. In a way, mm-hmm. I would say perhaps maybe Ben is a form of writer's block. And so that his death is symbolic of him as a creation of Jong-Soo's mind finally being destroyed. He is he has removed the fate, the impediment that is stopping him from um, you know, progressing, from living his life. If he mm. if he doesn't actually exist, of course. God, there's so much I want that I have to say about this fucking ending. Um <laughs> do it. So I, um, if you think that, uh, when you, when you're seeing Ben, uh, Ben, Jung-Soo writing, there's still a, a fair bit to go, or no, there's not, I'm sorry, I'm misplacing this. When you see Jung-Soo writing, if you think to yourself, all right, this is the parasite ending, he's writing this, this isn't actually happening, this could just be something he wants to happen. Right, like how he. Oh, oh, <laughs> sorry. I, I, I just had the idea. What if he was writing the actual ending to the yeah, film? Yeah, that's writing what I'm out? saying. <laughs> totally. <laughs> that like he's he's writing this story about Ben, and he's like, you know, trying to make sense of his life like, through this fiction. And he's like, him. you know, this guy, like, in in this story, what makes the most sense is that he killed Jaime. She's disappeared after leaving with Ben that night. She hasn't talked to anyone else. Ben is the last person that drove her away. And he said the greenhouse was very, very near and he was going to burn it soon. Later, he said he burned it two days after they hung out. Ben killed her. And so what makes the most sense to me, I'm going to write this out. I killed him. And this is part of a story, right? Maybe he, he wrote the historical events that we saw happen in the film. Like he sort of, fictionalized them and wrote them and we're not what we see up to that point isn't fiction but in the book that he's ending you know it's been a sort of version of the story of burning we've seen and then we see the ending Jiangsu wrote that's that's a thing you could think about i think there's a lot of layers to this i mean so this is this class movie right i mean and you could see this in a very abstract and metaphorical way. Like, I think you could see a lot of the scenes in this movie. Um, Jung-Soo, as a, as a person on the other side of the wealth divide, on the, the quote-unquote the bad side, right? This the side that, that's a have-not, will never have the legitimate smoking gun he needs to, through... The system in place now through law-abiding means get some of what Ben has 
and bring bring Ben down a peg. He'll never have justice, right? There's this great injustice mm-hmm. that has happened. Jaime has, has gone missing, and she's probably dead. Ben, it, in Jung Su's mind, Ben did it. But there's no evidence. He will never find it because the world is protecting the rich. And so what he has to do is take direct action. It, it may, maybe it's class revolt. Maybe it's some other kind of direct action. And act on what he has without looking for approval from the, the system in which he is operating because that system is built to protect people like Ben. And so he just takes that action and acts on his gut, acts on the evidence he has, all the rest of it be damned. And it's sort of a representation of class action against the wealthy. You could see it like that. Um, I think a totally kind of under thought about part of that scene. Definitely speaking for me and for my experience too of watching the film the first few times is once Ben realizes he's going to die, he hugs Jung Soo. He's embracing Mm. him. And it's almost like he's a big brother or a dad. Like it feels like he's forgiving him. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it's like, how do you fit that in? And I mean, it's, it's all part of like, this is such a, not a neat and tidy story. This is, I don't think this is some sort of like Ben is the villain. Jong Su is the hero, neat and tidy, like done and dusted. Let's go home. Um, there's a lot of holes you could poke in, in a simple interpretation like that. Um, and I think it's fascinating that Ben hugs him. And if Ben is real, Right. If this scene is real, it's fascinating that what Jung Soo had to do to get him to show up in a remote ass place, the middle of nowhere, is me and Jaime want to hang out with you. If he killed Jaime, wouldn't he think that was suspicious? <laughs> wouldn't he that's never? A, ever? A, that is an that is an excellent. He would point. never. He'd be like. Unless he planned to kill, unless he was like, okay, this kid now knows what I've done, so I'm going to go to where he is and I'm going to kill him. That doesn't seem at all what he's there to do. That doesn't come across in his body language or tone or anything like that to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And the fact that he talks about greenhouses, plural, uh, in that scene suggests to, to, lends credence to the theory that, like, he's just talking about actual greenhouses and not young women. Um, But... Again, it's like <laughs> anything I, I pasted in chat in uh, not in our chat, but in the discord, um, the burning discussion, the Wikipedia entry <laughs> for this scientific notion uh, called underdetermination. Um, I've, I've, I've heard it when you're talking about uh, scientific hypothesis, you know, whether or not it's uh, underdetermined or not. So underdetermination is a thesis explaining that for any scientifically based theory, there will always be at least one rival theory that is also supported by the evidence given. And that theory can also be logically maintained in the face of any new evidence. So like it just hit me so hard watching this movie. Like that is just, that describes this movie perfectly because there's all these 
coherent evidence-based stories that you could tell, even though there's like, you can always find this piece that doesn't fit uh, and that contradicts. Or, I mean, some people might think it contradicts. Other people would be like, okay, I can explain it and incorporate it into my story of the film this other way. And again, that just goes back to like uh, the nature of the world, the way that uh, director Lee sees it. Uh, it's not neat and tidy. It doesn't fit together like a puzzle. You're not meant to understand it. That It can't be understood that way. It's a mystery. Like Jong Jong Su yes. says at one point, he can't write his novel because the world is a mystery to him. Yep, and it's funny you mentioned that because this will now lead me on to something else. What to bring up? Uh, although I think actually I'm going to pass the baton back to you first. No, you I'm go ahead. I feel like I've been talking for a while. You go. You go ahead. Uh, so, so here's the thing, though. You mentioned like that you can't understand the world, and that's true. Like the, the you know, <laughs> there's always that thing of write what you know and all that, but that's also in itself uh, a deeply flawed sentiment. Um, but I said before about the idea of things, for example, ranging the gamut from, oh, uh, is it not a bit artificial? Um, uh, like, is it not the artifice of like, oh, I met Amy at the uh, the lottery promotion and I won the specific item that I could give to her as a gift, um, which then led to me, me, you know, getting to hang out more and us sleeping together. And by the way, I again must reiterate, that's not me criticizing the film. Sure. Uh, I think if you, want, if you want to read in such a way that it shows... Jong Su's limited or stifled imagination, you mm-hmm. can do that. But let's also then once again turn that upside down. Those things do happen. They're rare, they're precious, but they do happen. I mean, if we also extend that to Hamy later on in the film when she's dancing topless in the garden, like that's a beautiful moment. And if we therefore take it to be real, um, for all that, like Sir Jong Su says, he doesn't understand the world. There's so much that's beautiful and brilliant right in front mm-hmm. of him that could serve as an inspiration for him. Yes, he just needs to pay more attention to it. Agree, agree. I think Ben was trying to tell him that <laughs> later. Yeah, because <laughs> the and that then funnily enough would tie into my idea of Ben being the you know the writer's block, mm. the uh, the the obstacle that he must overcome mm-hmm. in order to finally unleash his creativity. Um, but that, I mean, because otherwise, like, you know, you run the risk, I think, of interpreting this film in such a way where you say so much of it didn't happen. And you can then still argue that, of course, to the point of, well, it's about, say, the mental illness element or the plight of the creative. Um, that, and well, yeah, that's right. We want to create, but things block us Mm -hmm. from doing so. But, but, that then also precludes that if you all go too far in that direction, it precludes the possibility of the real things that, of things being uh, diegetically real in this film um, that are beautiful because that's true of real life. There's so much that's wonderful out there that we might take for granted or not realize, like the chance encounter with someone you've not seen for years, mm-hmm. a tender moment shared with them. I mean, even going down to something else I've not brought up yet, the cat. Oh boy, like, <laughs> you could you you could mention that. Well, his calling it Boyle seems like something a bad story writer would do because it's just, you know, quirky detail. Like, but some people would do that. I mean, because yeah. they, that ca- Jaime's that ca- whole existence is like, like manic pixie dream girl, like personified. Like she's everything she does is like is is quirky in that sort of way. Uh, right. And feels yeah. uh, like it's uh, very spontaneous. 
and like, oh, I named the cat Boyle. Like, well, that's like her whole life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. By, by, by the way, speaking against the classified element, cats as pets, maybe that's if we take the, the cat didn't exist, because you'll note that there was that very specific detail that there was a cat litter trick yeah. with cat poop in it. We certainly see that once. And, yes, definitely. Yes. And so imagine that, that like Jong Su, like, is either so, like, he's either so depressed or just that he's never really had a pet of his own, that he can imagine the ancillary elements of having a pet, like, you know, the cleanup after it, the feeding of it, all that, but he can't imagine what the presence of one actually sure. is like inside someone's sure. life. There's a, there's a thing for you. Or it could just literally be that the cat is there, but it spooks mm. by Yeah. Him, but then know? he imagines um, it later the, the, in Ben's house uh, as a... Yes. As, as another piece of evidence that, uh, you know, Jaime has been been offed by ben you know ben took her cat yeah so it's so it's not left unsaid by the way the other interpretation with jaime's absence is just literally that she has left for pastures anew without telling anyone that's yep. also a possibility mm-hmm. she's did um, it to her family I'm, you know what i mean like it's a huge like yes it's like definitely don't think like uh the only possibilities for her as a character are to be to to not be real or to be dead like she you know, when jung goes to eat the noodles to have a chat with her, uh, I guess her older sisters or mom or auntie or whatever, like they talk about her and and uh, they are not fans of her because uh, because, yeah, she's um, apparently been asking them for all this money, has all this debt and basically ghosted them like they don't really talk anymore, um, which is like a common yeah. thing between her and jung like jung is estranged from his uh, mom when his mom I mean, I guess estranged might be the wrong word, but basically his mom left his dad uh, and they haven't talked in 16 years. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, other class related elements that are just flip-flopping around. jong Su goes to uh, get for an interview at what is basically an Amazon warehouse. Yeah. And you can again read this out of the way. And there is, there is interpretation taken from both. Uh, the first of which is just the... Um, the immense discrepancy between the amount of effort and intent required from the interviewees for such menial work. Will you commute two hours a day to this <laughs> shitty warehouse job? Yes, sir, mm-hmm. I will. Um, and then Jong Su's like, no, I, I, I'm not a part of this. Or I'm yeah, this is beneath this. me. Is definitely how I felt. Yeah. yeah. Or if, or if he, or if he never went there, sure. like that's all he can imagine these people as just broad stereotypes of like the overly eager to please, like you know. Um, yes, yeah. man, of a character. or just like a that like a reskin of, of his old job or something, yeah. Basically, um, I'm fairly confident as well that that's the same number of people crops up in the later scene, not the specific um, people in question. But I just thought, oh, there's the same amount. I mean, I think it might be the dance one, like that. He's only limited to imagining so many people at once. If you want to, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um. So yeah, there's that as well. I like. I think for me, like watching this film, though, I I found it to be quite a little, uh, quite a painful mm-hmm. time. Just seeing like all these little moments where you're like, because you, I've done some shitty stuff in my time, felt shitty about people that didn't deserve it. I've never admittedly killed anyone, so don't worry about that. <laughs> this is not my confessional tape. <laughs> I have, I have never, I have never murdered a man for his Porsche and thrown my clothes in there. <laughs> <laughs> to go back to my shitty truck uh, <laughs> naked as the day I was born but I really do think the film speaks to the angst of someone who 
as I say, like, would love to... I mean, I can actually sum this up, funnily enough, with the Africa thing. Because you remember what I said before about, okay, we learn it's Africa and then it's Nairobi mm-hmm. Airport. Crazy note, crazy theory here. But what if Africa was just, again, like a figment of his imagination as a place he would love to visit but never could mm-hmm. do? And so that's where he's imagining Haney going. Uh, but then the Nairobi airport bombing was a real event, and it's just something he's retrofitted into this narrative. Mm. But I bring that up because, um, you know, like being able to travel, being able to see and experience so many different wonderful things is what nourishes a mind like Jong Su's. It mm. feeds the hunger of both sorts, I would say. Um, it would be able to inspire him, like, you know, to be, to come up with new experiences, to create new things in his writing um so yeah part of the film is about the malaise that he afflicts on himself you could say and part is it just the malaise the world inflicts on him what uh, and it's it is i mean this movie uh definitely makes me feel ill at ease uh every time i watch it um for all sorts of reasons you know like you still like uh the small moments of cruelty the times that the characters like uh there's i i want to talk about Jaime in general in a minute but i mean there's a couple different times uh that i feel like she's like like her actions are like a cry for help (laughs) from jung Mm soo or or for like towards him you know what i mean like um like when she's gonna first go home from the airport uh and you know they kind of look at each other and he's like yeah, you can you can go home with Ben. I'm sure you want to go home with Ben. And she like walks over there, and while he's looking away, she's looking at him. And then when he turns to look after her, she's looking in another direction. You know what I mean? Like they just it's heartbreaking because like they wanna be together, but um but this other part of of Jaime and just kind of circumstances and Ben are just sort of playing out and uh pulling her away from him. And there's the whole story of the well, which is a ne- Analogous oh, yes. to the cat, right? Is a thing that um, you know, and no one thinks, no one, everyone tells Jung Su is not real that Jaime made it up, uh, except for his mom. Uh, at the end, uh, when they finally have a discussion, get together, um, and you know that whole story. That I think the the way that I the thing that I feel like resonates with me the most the, the most like the interpretation of that is Jaime is is making it up uh but it's like this story that is like Jung Su like help me like he she's saying it without saying it right again in a culture that encourages like best foot forward like don't express your individuality so overtly uh you know um brave face on everything. She's telling this story of being trapped at the bottom of a well. And then Jung Su, you saved me elbow in the ribs. Save me now. I'm trapped. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I was just saying the, the other thing I want to bring up as well is also just the idea of masculinity. If we take uh, Ben to be a construct, either partially or wholly, um, and just compare him to Jung Su, um, I mean, yeah, he's clean cut and all that. Um, it, I think also this. I again, I joke. I made the burning joke before when he was looking at the radio tower, but I mean that's your cooler shop moment. He wants a big dick. I'll just come out and say it. 
and I'm not even being funny about it. Like, you know, fe- like that feeling of inferiority is something that men do experience, even if, of course, they have nothing to directly compare it to. Do you think Jiangsu has a lot um, of LDE? LDE? Little dick energy? In this movie. <laughs> oh, dude, that's, a, that's harsh. That's harsh. I, I think that, basically, he feels inferior in many ways. Uh, and that even sure. extends to... Um, even extends to his sexuality um, with, you know, the way he's awkward with Haney when they're sleeping together because it looks awkward as fuck. Um, so that moment there when he's jerking off and he's, and again, cuts to the tower and he's like, you know, why can I not be as, in, why can my manhood not be as impressive as this? Not in a literal sense, of course, but you know what I mean yeah. by that. It's a subconscious um, thing. But all these little, yeah, all these little nuances weaving throughout the film uh, and all these little microaggressions that you can see bothering him where, okay, yes, either it's an entirely self-contained fantasy, which is unhealthy, but at least he's not actually harming real people, or his imagination has overtaken himself to the point where he is pushing and hurting other people to the point where he murders someone. Um, unless we forget, of course, what he does, like, you know, of his cruelty to Haney. Um, with with him saying, like, does she act like a whore? Which is fucking yeah. hell, dude. Yeah, and then dude. my man gets quite nude after that. <laughs> like he <laughs> learns that nudity has more than one meaning. You prude dickhead. Like uh it's vulnerability too, as you literally now uh know if this is actually a thing that's literally happening to him. Um yeah. I mean you could call this film Dicks Out, <laughs> the spiritual success of two shines out. Could. You could. Um okay. Uh, transitioning from the sophomoric humor, we need to talk about Jaime I, I, uh, because I think she's a, just a fascinating character. Like, what is your impression of her? What's your read on her? Like, do you like what do you think her significance is? Like, tell me what you think about Jaime. I think that in part, like her, the way she acts in the presentation is something like maybe a rebellion against. In the enforced like uh, idea of a woman in Korea, in much the same way that I mentioned about Jong Su having his own sense of masculine inferiority, um, because you know, if it turns out she is sleeping with Ben and therefore is promiscuous, what's the big problem with that? And again, this is where I'm culturally blind on this. So I don't know all that much about how Korea views sex and sexuality. To be quite honest, uh, that plastic surgeon. Surgery figure though fucking blue yeah. I was gonna say like, do you before. do you think rebellion is a good word to describe someone who got plastic surgery? Like you know who's very sort of you know following you the know, beauty what, trend. But it's that <laughs> well, it, it's difficult to say for in one sense because we would need to know what she looks like when she was younger. Um, granted, though, like. If she was that young when they last saw him, then the cha- the change she would have undergone would have been so dramatic to adulthood anyway. Sure. That it, it maybe there's no functional difference. But the thing is, like, pl- like when it comes to like having plastic surgery and where it's that common, that it stops it, it having plastic surgery itself stops being an act of rebellion. It becomes that's what I'm saying. Like that is totally what I mean. Is like that seems like the standard. Uh, the the standards that the culture is pushing upon its young women and the fact that she did it 
is sort of, uh, to me, runs counter to the idea of her as a rebel. Uh, now, maybe you could say she has changed and everything like that, but but I don't know. I don't know. I'm just uh, just inter- just interrogating the, the moment, your interpretation. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mostly agree. The moment in which she has, like, you know, that she's, like, smoking the pot and, like, dancing half naked in the farm area, like, maybe it feels like, maybe you can interpret that as the fact that she could be more of herself away from the more cosmopolitan urban area where there would be those expectations voiced upon her about her appearance and behavior. Um, but I have to say, like, I, I know, again, I, I only know of this secondhand about, like, criticisms of Haruki, Haruki Murakami's depiction of women. But I think part of the problem is that, like, while Haimi is a, re- a self-realized character, her existence in the film, ironically enough, is much to serve as jo- as Jong Su's motivation for things. I would say. Now, oh, I disagree. Yes, I'm. I, 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 I'm saying that, like, up until a certain point, I think that's like she's definitely self actualized. But then, once she disappears from the film, it's like the fact that we don't have a conclusive reason why she's gone. I think could be an argument that she stops being like you know there for her own sake because if we knew that. And by the way, I must again say we can learn this as an audience without Jong Su knowing, so his own like viewpoint on that can remain like his own, distinct from us. There is that, you know, uh, discord between audience and in, and character knowledge. Uh, but yeah, I think that maybe if we'd learned what that was, like why she had left, maybe she has been killed. Although you could then make the argument, of course, that she was fridged. Um, anyway. I, I would say that I think that it is ultimately a story about Jong Su and not in like it's like seventy five percent about him, twenty five percent about her. And we can put Ben in there, I suppose. We can squeeze him into the pie if we want. Um But yeah, I, I think like that after a certain point, uh, her contributions to the film quite literally ceases in a way where it stops being a, it's not so much about her as about what happens to mm-hmm. her. Yeah, no, I can agree with that that last for sure. I mean, I think <clears throat> I think the the part she plays is quite significant to me in understanding like the heart of the movie. Like yeah, I, I definitely would disagree with, with any notion that she's like half baked or fridged or only kind of existing to motivate the boys. Like I mean think gosh. Like she is pivotal to me to understanding the the sorts of uh, people that I feel like Lee, director Lee, wants to speak to uh, and depict the greenhouses. Like you look at the greenhouses, um, and the way Ben describes the greenhouses. Like to me, it's like such a clear metaphor for like Jaime like embodies that metaphor of someone who's been cast off and society has deemed as worthless and is now waiting for powerful people to burn her down, to prey on her, to have some uh, alternatively, alternatively, what if the right person came? Exactly. Yes. Oh, uh, definitely. Right. I mean, like that's, it seems like the idea here is that like, society as currently is constructed is not built for that to happen but it could and that would be nope. amazing but like but there are things that are 
they're just these uncrossable borders, right? They're divisions that are keeping us keeping us apart. And so t- to me, like, I mean, she just represents all that stuff. But also one of the like the second scene in the movie when they're at the bar sort of unlocks, I think, a, a way to look at the movie and, you know, the whole reality versus unreality thing when she's talking about her pantomime class, um, particularly the tangerine. You know, and she mimes like she's holding mm. a, the fake tent. She's like, when you're hungry, I just do this. You know, she's like, pretends to peel the tangerine. She's like, I can have tangerines whenever I want. And she's a really good pantomime. And Jung Su is like, wow, you're great at this. And she's like, you know, it's not about pretending it's there, but forgetting it's not there. Um, Which I thought was cool. Mm. And I think, again, is like just this this key to when you look at the cat or the well or Ben as a murderer the the watch uh you know things like that um these things that may or may not exist their existence and characters in the film hold the film, you know, as as a as a fact, as a historical fact. These events, whether or not they really happen or exist, matter so much less than like what do the people observing them believe, and how do they act based on those beliefs? And mm-hmm. like to, to yeah. me, that is like such such an important scene. And like, I'm not a Korean person and i haven't been young in a long time but i feel like too you know the, in the way that this movie is sort of universally speaking to youth like th- when she's vulnerable in the in the uh restaurant when they go to get tripe together after the airport and she's crying and she says like you know she feels like she's at, at when she saw the sunset she's like i feel like i'm at the end of the world and I want to vanish like the setting sun. Dying seems scary, but if I could set like the sun and vanish as if I never existed, uh, that's what I want. And and funnily enough, that's arguably yeah, what sure, happens. Sure, exactly. Right. And like and then we had Ben doing his Ben stuff, but like <clears throat> you know, oh, she ben. she does vanish and never gets to fulfill her her hunger. But like to me, like that moment of vulnerability is like you know, goddamn, like before I was thinking about family every day and paying for a house and bills and, you know, when I had more, more kind of energy and time to like think about uh, my place in the world and the meaning of my life and things like that, like, like I saw, so that's where I kind of saw myself too, is like, man, like, you know, feeling alone in the cosmos in that way such that you know you just want to fade away i mean like that was just such an incredible moment and such a like i think that the movie really just like laser targeting on maybe like the feelings of you mentioned ennui and like despondence loneliness disconnectedness of people growing up in the 2010s, the 2020s. And if that's true, I mean, how sad is that, right? 
um, an incredibly yeah. just, and, and I, and I relate to it. I mean, cause I've, you know, felt similar feelings at times. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the Jaime character expressing all these things, um, and, you know, kind of, uh, showing like, I don't know, going through her arc with Ben about like dressing up and wearing makeup suddenly, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. Like, I, I don't know. I just think she's like, uh, she's a lot more, the more I watch the movie, the more kind of import, I think that I, I felt that she had in the movie. Yeah. It, it's depressing when you think about it, like that the, the only person who seems truly happy is Ben, and that's because he's wealthy, but he has no <clears throat> creative output of any sort. Like, and that's such a dark way of looking at the world that, like, that the people who have either, as in Jong Su's case, the, you know, desire to write and create, or in Hermes' case, who just seems like a person who wants to explore and soak in the world and just be free and vibrant in it. Like, they're the incomplete ones. And something's there's something something deeply deeply wrong. Yeah, unfair about that. I mean, yeah. Well, that's funny. So, I hear where you're coming from, right? I mean, as someone who is not a wealthy person, I look at Ben and I think that's a happy person. And again, the more I've watched the movie, I'm like, is that the case? Um, He's certainly smiling a lot. Um, He certainly, you know, has his material wants looked after, but like. You know, if you think he is a killer, that's something he has to do, like to feel the base, like that's why he lives. I mean, he's like, that's the only way to live. That's my reason for living is feeling that base. Mm. And like the fact that his life, having everything taken care of for him, having wonderful meals in a car, none of that, that doesn't satisfy him. So he's unhappy too with yes, that right. and like yeah i mean and and i don't know man like he th- there's little little ways uh too that i think you know his emptiness kind of rears its head from time to time like when he's looking out over the lake and i don't know why he um depending on how you interpret his character right like how you why you would argue he uh hangs out with Jung Su and uh Jaime to begin with. Like you could say, like if you if you think I don't know, if you read Ben as totally like uh how do I say like uh, that everything he says is is true and, and how he feels and everything like that. That like he's only hanging out with uh people like Jung Su and Jaime to like kind of leech off their their authenticity and or their like you yes. know what i mean their realness <laughs> and then when when he gets bored of it then he you know goodbye jaime <laughs> uh whatever whether he kills her or just doesn't care that she goes away um yeah maybe that's why he hooked um jong su in the end because like he himself had some sort of pain uh, yes yes well, he was finally yeah. set free from. Yeah. Oh, the the one thing I was gonna, uh, I was I was like, why am I forgetting a moment that shows Ben is incomplete? He has never cried. <laughs> the man's never shed a tear. He said, 
Well, I know that you said vampirism. Maybe he just actually lives a literal vampire. <laughs> he got stakes at the end. It all hey, makes sense. It's true. It's true. The greenhouses were full of garlic. <laughs> my God. He burned him down. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. It's a it's a black Porsche with darks out windows. Yes. Oh, my God. Um. I mean, I mean, I think Ben would agree, though. What is a man if not a miserable pile of secrets? Oh, yeah. Yes! I got to make that reference. Oh, I'm so good. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Okay, I forget whose turn it is. Uh, I don't really have much else to add that we haven't already mm, discussed, okay. to be honest. Um, I have a few things that I'll, that I'll throw it out here. Um, I think um, if, you know... And I think, I don't know, I, I'm weird. So I think simultaneously every theory we've said is true. Because I think every, all these theories lead to, and I'm not talking about some multiverse or shit or whatever. I'm just saying like every theory that we've posited about this movie, and I'm sure there are 10 more, um, you mine things out of it that feel intentional, <laughs> that feel like, this is the answer that that they want me to to get. Like this is real. This is not just you know. Some people are just like you know, oh yeah, like it's everyone's interpretation. Like I interpret this movie as being about helicopters, uh, you know, or, or whatever, <laughs> whatever the fucking thing is, or whatever. And like it doesn't, you know, that that doesn't matter. We all know there's a real interpretation. Like this movie really does feel like, like God, no matter what Avenue you explore interpretationally, hermeneutically, like there is gold. Um, and so, so if you think that it, it, going off the theory that like Ben is a murderer, I think that the, the, the difference in violence in this movie is another way it illustrates the class divide in a really effective way because yeah you're right you're been right. like you know he kills Jaime let's say uh and is preparing to maybe kill this this other young woman uh, but we never see it on screen because it's just taken care of so smoothly and easily it's uh he's beyond suspicion because he's just yep, so charming it's just uh the sun goes down and it goes up and the person that he wants dead is dead uh, it's like it never happened um, wh- and he gets away with it. Uh, whereas like Jung Su, we see it on screen. It's a horrific, difficult, sickening act. We see him vomit afterward. Like he has to be totally vulnerable. He's left naked afterward. It costs him so much. Whereas killing costs Ben nothing. And that is like, to me, I, again, just this incredible way of illustrating uh, what the class divide is like. It's how each class can execute violence uh, and how that affects them. Um, you know, we have like Jung Su talking about, well, he's not talking about it. Uh, Jung Su, like we see his dad, right? He's a violent man. He's got violent DNA. But Ben, he think you know, he's on that, on this, phone with his mom he talks about his superior dna um and so jung su perhaps is caught in a cycle of 
violence. And if, if he has kids, like, you know, maybe they'll inherit, inherit his need to, to be violent in this really horrific way. Um, and again, it's a, yeah, it's just like, I think this really cool way of showing the divide there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would 100% agree that. Um, let's see. Okay. Uh, here is a theory that I haven't talked about. Like here, here is my, the last time I had a, a theory about the movie about like, okay, at point X, it stops being real. Here is mine. Credits roll. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that's one of them. I definitely have had that recently. Uh, my most recent watch of the film was like, this, this shit all really happened. Um, but like, to me, if you're going to say at some point in the movie, it stops being historical and starts being either a dream or fiction writing or whatever, the last 30 minutes. I think after that scene I talked about earlier of Jung Su following Ben to the lake. I think he gets mm-hmm. so close to Ben. Just on the other side of the Porsche. And the way that that character is moving and standing up. And him just like he's so vulnerable, like Ben is going to find him. And Ben is going to kill him <laughs> for being followed. Um. And so afterward is either his dream or something like that. Think about what happens. Or here's, here's some things that happen in the last 30 minutes of the film that are completely contrary to everything that has happened before. He finds mm-hmm. tangible evidence of what Jung Su finds tangible evidence of what he feels is like the murder. He finds the watch and he finds the kitty. The person that kept calling him and never speaking finally speaks. And it turns out to be his mom who he's never seen in 16 years. And his mom, the way his mom acts towards him seems to be like the way like a teenager would act towards someone. Like he can't, like you were saying about his imagination, like he can't imagine the way like a mom would act to him. He imagines someone who's like on their phone all the time. You know what I mean? Um, and so like yeah. she feels very unreal just showing up out of the blue. Um, and his mom confirms the well story. The only person in the movie that said there was a well, everyone else said there's no well. And so like, he- well, 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 what if, what if, it, what if in the convenience of his mother turning up, of course, in it's in itself, perhaps a him that maybe like she's in turn just a construct in his mind. Because of course, if that if that were the case, she would. That's what I'm saying. That's absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. That is totally what. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and and he lets himself off the hook, like he in quote unquote reality, right? Like he's been given all this evidence not to trust Jaime that she's making this up, and like when he takes over, when he's dreaming or writing, like yes, there really was a well. Uh, he hates his dad. His dad gets punished. You know, his dad gets sentenced to jail. So his dad is going to be punished, which he desires subconsciously. We haven't even talked about the whole him burning his mom's clothes and how wild that is. Um, <laughs> he kills Ben. Okay. Um, and Ben shows up at the scene on the, uh, the most flimsy premise ever. Which it all seems so surreal. 
And he finally sells the calf and gets money from selling the calf. And he's writing. None of these things, like it all seems so different than what's happened before. It's like things are moving forward and working. So that was my like one of my working theories as far as like part of this movie's unreal. It's the tangerine, you know. Mmm. Could be worse. It could have been an onion. Oh boy. But it would still oh have layers to it. Oh boy. Um. So yeah, we've talked about how like literal and metaphorical readings like are both coherent. You could read it both ways. This film and they both are rich uh, veins to, to mine for meaning, and they both like they both make sense. Um, and you don't have to sort of exclusively hew to one or the other. Um, what did you think of the part where uh, Jaime asked, "What's a metaphor?" And Ben is like, ask Jung Soo. And Jung Soo doesn't tell her. <laughs> what, what do you think? Do you think that ha- is, is meaningful at all? Well, it depends how you want to look at it. It could suggest, again, the idea that his uh, his imagination, his actual talent of writing is limited because he simply doesn't understand it mm-hmm. himself. Uh, it could be that he fears saying it because it might dispel the illusion of the constructs he's created in his mind. Um it, yeah, or maybe he's just yeah. He, maybe he's got a more important question to ask her. <laughs> but I think he just yeah. asked her where the bathroom is. <laughs> so it's like mm-hmm. it feels like he's trying to get out of it. Uh, but the be- the the, bef- the metaphor is in the bathroom. <laughs> we keep it in the cupboard. Yeah, it feels like he's just this literal. Yeah, this very literal minded person um, in some ways, and uh, and maybe sort of him. Being so, like, coming from where he comes from, a life of, on the farm and everything. Like, maybe he just looks at the world in black and white and is very straightforward and literal to a fault. And a person without a lot of nuance. Uh, and that's why he judges Jaime. And that's why maybe he's, like, pigeonholed Ben into this this role of the killer. Uh, the tape, you know, because he, he, he stole his, he's Mr. Steal Your Girl, right? He, he took his, his woman, as you said. He, the little that he had gained in this world, uh, the, the, the small amount he had, he had this girl, uh, the, he'd fallen in love with her and she, she seemingly loved him. And then Mr. Rich guy who has everything took her and, uh, yep. you know, and him again, being so sort of looking at the world in the way he does is like, all right, I'm going to find, I'm going to, to, to create a story about him. I'm going to find reasons why he killed her. Cause it, that's the only thing that makes sense to me. Um, yep. So I thought that was really cool. We talked about the hug, man. I was just, the hug is just fucking wild. And I, it's just haunting, very haunting scene. Um, we talked about the loneliness and feelings of unease and isolation. um, Yeah, I guess like the only other thing I'll say is, and I touched on this earlier, I guess, like, but I mean, this movie really could just be about how Jung Su's a monster. <laughs> like, and, <Yep>. and how, <laughs> you know, uh, he, uh, but, but not one of his own making. Like, you know what I mean? Like, 
his DNA and his uh, environment have seemingly really put him behind the eight ball here, but but still he's cruel to someone who loves him. And the le- you know, if she died, the last thing he said to her was that she was a whore. Um, yeah, that's a bit it, of a shit, it's just isn't it? a real kick in the teeth, uh, you know, and um, and he has his feelings of anger and jealousy have sort of morphed in his mind. Uh, this guy been into killer and he finally just killed him. An innocent man who was, you know, like a, a, a kind of a dick, as we said, uh, a pretty uh, cold, aloof fellow. And, uh, you know, maybe didn't uh, share our values, but like, Maybe he didn't. Maybe also he didn't kill Jaime. Maybe she just did ghost the the those two guys like she ghosted uh, her her family. Um, yeah, and I think it's worth just pointing out as well. Like if that is the case, uh, like Jong Su having this like deep affection for Jaime, like you could argue that he goes too far in feeling that because it mm-hmm. was just the one night sure. stand that they had. And I don't mean I I don't mean to like diminish that, but by contrast, like. Ben not caring, like maybe they, you know, you could see that there's extreme ends of the reaction where the one should be in the middle is, uh, hey, go off and have a good life. Don't worry about it. Or maybe Jaime literally just did go because she only barely knew Ben. I mean, she just literally met him while in Africa. Coincidentally and conveniently enough, I mean, Africa is a big bloody <laughs> place to meet someone who lives in your neighborhood, who is super wealthy <laughs> and yeah, from yeah. your country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. If I had one final thing I would say about this film, having just been ruminating on it for a bit, what like whether or not some or all of the events or people are true as presented, whether they're embellished or different or just complete figments of the imagination, I think the film does serve as a warning towards like the culmination of toxic feelings inside yourself, like and the need for positive action, because. If you do, as I say, take the end of the film and Ben's death to be like, you know, a metaphor for, and there you go, I'm explaining metaphor now, uh, a metaphor for um, Chog Su overcoming his like, you know, inner image of Ben or even just like, you know, as this as this rich douchebag or even just that it's a representation of his like, you know, mu- like his muse no longer being stifled, um, you know, don't let that toxic idea build in your mind. Or even then, if it is real, and he has literally killed a guy, well, he's killed a guy. Yeah, you know the the world the world is uncaring. It's divided and split. I mean, he lives on the North Korea, like the DMZ border. Um, it very much does not care about the poor, and it doesn't care about the creative talents of the poor unless they can be monetized. Yes, in such a way. yes, yes. Um, yeah, there's all of that, but. You know, there's still beautiful mm-hmm. things to be found. Little moments, as I say, little um, coincidences, um, scenes um, like the magic hour where they're having the, um, you know, the the chill with the with the pot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's worth just reminding ourselves what's for us and trying to just suppress those awful feelings from taking hold of us. Whether it stops us from writing, uh, you know, the novel we've been uh, like uh, creating something that's been brewing inside our minds so long to dare I say going as far as taking someone else's Mm. life it's a warning against negativity uh, and only that if you actually do like take some action on your own 
that you can stop it, lest you end up like Jong Su. And that's true regardless of what way you view Ben's death, whether it literally happened mm. or not. Okay, so I have a, a slightly different, slightly different read in terms of what you were just talking about. Like, so what I what I don't think is that um, the the rapidity with which he develops feelings for Jaime is. And I understand where you're coming from um, with that, especially in in our culture. Um, but I, I don't think that that is a, a thing that the film, the way I read it, condemns. Because I think Jaime is the same in that regard. And I think she, I, I choose to believe that she does reciprocate Jung Su's feelings. Right. I mean, for real, like I think, you know, looking at these events that play out over the first half of the movie, as if they are really actually happening, like they both develop real, a really strong feelings for each other. And you might be thinking, like, how sad, right? They just have met each other. And in a sense, that's true, of course. But in a sense, I think it's, like, sort of we're meant to, like, lament that because you have these two, you know, beautiful young people who are, like, in the prime of life vibrant, and they're like, oh, my God, connection. I must cling and gobble it up. Mm. Like, Jaime's, like I said, going to Africa by herself. She's disconnected yeah. from her family, no friends. And then she's told Ben, unless, you know, Ben's lying or whatever. Um, <coughs> pardon me. She's told Ben, Jung Su's like the one person who will always be on my side. Like, he's my, my very good friend. Like, you know, she's seeing Ben, of course, because that little hunger in her, she wants a better life. Uh, but like, I think the, the, the fast connection to Ben and to Jung Su were like just indicative of a sort of societal condition that I think the film is talking about and how like we are so atomized and apart from each other that like anytime we, you get kind of these, as you said, faded almost collisions it's like, oh my God, I have to hold on to this. And yes, no, absolutely yes. though, Jung Su's like feelings, if you think Ben is innocent, especially, uh become very become unhealthy. Um, for sure. I think that that is true. Um, but yeah. I, I guess the, uh, the way I look at it is not it is uh that the film isn't like sort of wagging its finger like, mm, you know, uh, you need to calm down, Jung Su. Like, I think that they had a real thing. Um, and it is, it is sad in a way, I guess, that, that they both became infatuated with each other so quickly because of the state of their lives. But I think that infatuation was like a mutual thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think that, also, one could then say, like, even if you feel as I do that he might have overreacted uh, a little bit, let's be honest as well, though, like, it would have been nice to develop into something more than what they had. Yeah. 
Yeah. If only if only Ben weren't there. God damn it. Ben. Let that be a less <laughs> let that be the other lesson to you, uh listener at home on the bus airplane, wherever you might be. Don't be a Ben. I greenhouse that I'm gonna burn Come is on. very, very near. Very near indeed. <laughs> Ben's so handsome. It's not fair. Steven Yun is a beautiful man, and none of us will ever be as handsome as him. And it's sad. Speak yourself. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, I mean, I am admittedly a Wojak meme personified. <laughs> I just, so I suppose I really can't say that. But at the same time, eh, eh, damn you, Stephen Ewan, but eh, I'm all right. I'm happy with it. Well, um, yeah, I guess, I guess that concludes our discussion. Yes, I suppose it does. Um, my, I, my other final pie words would just be that, yeah, if you watch this film, um, please, as I say, don't get trapped in the minutiae of discussing it with people where you have to come down all at once on the same side of what did or did not happen on a moment-by-moment basis. Like, in this film and in life in general, look for meaning. Look for deeper, like, connections and ideas. That's what really matters. Don't be like those wankers on YouTube who are constantly arguing about, like, war <laughs> details. Like, I mean, now, I, and I say that, I don't mean to be dismissive. Taking shots at the Elden Ring fun, community but... right now. Sad. I feel, <laughs> I feel attacked. Well, you've practiced enough. You can dodge <laughs> out of the way of that. It's fine. Um, but what I mean to say is, like, that I'm not saying I'm not saying those uh, discussions are completely pointless, of course. But when that is the entirety of media criticism, as it often so feels like it is, uh, you're losing out on so much. I this film will be a hollow exercise for you if you just simply watch it and go, "Well, what did happen?" And what yeah, a plot didn't hole? Like, no. I see a plot hole here. It's like, well, that's there on purpose. Uh-huh. Like there is, <laughs> there's definitely this is a tapestry with many holes or a, a puzzle with missing pieces. Yep. It is an escape room and it's up to you to <laughs> puzzle it out uh, to get out to the uh, the lights of wasting outside of deeper meaning on it. Uh, tortured though that metaphor may be, um, yeah, I I would say let that be your like your guiding principle for watching this film that you come away with some interpretation not just of what happened, but what it means and then also just try and do that with other media as well. Now, I'm not saying you have to do that for every piece of media you consume. Some of the stuff that I watch is perfectly okay for me to turn my brain off to. Um, you know, I like a good bad action movie or even a good good action movie every now and again that isn't necessarily about, like, you know, like anti-imperialism, mental health, the creative spirits and the malaise itself. It's all the other stuff. Street Fighter, <laughs> the movie yeah. we, that we covered recently. <laughs> Oh, God, yeah. God, what whiplash go from that to this? But anyway, uh, that's my point, though. I'm just saying that, you know, let this movie be a springboard, or even our discussion, a springboard to you, yourself, like, taking something more meaningful, going deeper into the the media you consume, because that's what makes... Well, that's what you, to borrow Doc's terminology, that's what quells your great mm. hunger, or can quell your great hunger. That's That's well said, sir. Uh, beautifully put and i agree uh with all the sentiments um i 
I, for my part, I'll say again, I think this is a perfect film. Um, that does not mean I think it can never be surpassed. I just think for what it is, it achieves every single thing that it sets out to do and is a, a, a well uh, of, of art that's meaning can continually be mined from over and over again. In fact, I will say if you have watched this movie, rewatch this movie uh, because uh, the, the subsequent watches, especially my second watch uh, were as good, if not better than the first watch for me of this movie. Um, there is, there's just so much there. And I, the way I did it, so I was uh, early in 2020, I th- or was it 2021? I, I think it was 2020. Um, er, early on, I was like, you know, on a, a kick of Asian cinema. And I was watching Hong Kong, Japanese, Korean, and I came across this movie and watched it. And it's like, oh, my God, like, I know I've just witnessed something profound, but like, I just cannot wrap my mind around it. And so I just read a bunch about it, watched a bunch of videos, saw like what people thought uh, and then watched it again. I was just like, oh, my God, there's just so much here. It's just what a what a deep and rich movie this is. Uh, so, yeah, can't recommend this one enough to to people who feel like it's the kind of thing that that they would be interested in. A sort of slow, sad love story that becomes a psychological thriller. Uh, if, if that sounds interesting to you, uh, then definitely check this out for sure. Um, Shadon, I think I can reveal on podcast what we're covering next. Oh, yes. Uh, let, so let it rip. I now get to pick. Uh, by the way, Let It Rip is not a clue. We're not covering Beyblade. Um, to settle down, no, settle down. You can bark it out though if you want. Uh, we are. It is anime time. We've done our non-anime, so we're now back on our anime bullshit, and we will be watching uh, a film. We'll be watching a film by uh, a celebrated director, a director who is in, I'd say, in the conversation right now because one of their one of their oh, movies definitely. just kind of just came out recently and people are enjoying quite a bit. Mamoru Hosoda. Uh, we're going to be watching his, uh, I think 2011 film, uh, Wolf Children. Uh, have you seen Wolf Children? Oh, I'm not. excited. Yes. Fantastic. It is. It is not, however, the first, uh, sorry, I have not, I have seen other Mamoru Hosoda films. Uh, Summer Wars. Mm-hmm. I've seen that. Um, the girl who let through it was yep that was his first well no i'm sorry so he did direct the digimon movie what was it called the something war uh boku no war game or something like that um he directed that digimon movie but then his first i'll just say it i'll piss off digimon fans his first real movie that he directed (laughs) was was the girl who let through time yes 2006 yep Uh, and i uh and I have also much more recently seen his latest work, the one that you mentioned is in the conversation right now, which is Bell. Oh, very good. Um, I need to watch his recent. I have not seen Bell. I have not seen Mirai. I have not seen The Boy and the Beast. Uh, but his first three films I have seen. Uh, and Wolf Children is my most favorite. And while 
you know, between pods, Mother's Day happened. And so I thought, let's do this movie. Um, and so this will be fun. I have um, uh, uh, some uh, a lot of reading material on this movie to work through during my vacation. I'm about to go on vacation, so we won't be recording anything for a couple weeks. But that's nothing new. <laughs> um, but yeah, when we get back, our next movie will be Wolf Children. And I'm very excited to cover it. Um, Shadon, uh, if people want to talk about burning, if people want to talk about uh, the movie, not the general sensation, burning. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not a doctor, so you need to go speak to someone else. Uh, anime or any other kind of media. Uh, wh- how would they do that for you? Um, you can uh, find me at Twitter on, or rather on Twitter, at Shaden1010, and you can banter to me about all sorts of things. I'm currently watching Escaflone, for example, which is just so, so good. It's great. Uh, modern isekai creators. Um, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> what, like... Your entire genre is an embarrassment <laughs> relative to that show. Um, mainly because Escaflone succeeds using the ancient long-lost technique forever, you know, buried under the sands of time known as good writing. Wow. Where it actually has ideas and character relationships and drama where the titular giant sword-fighting robot is the least interesting part of the show. Uh, where it's also not an excuse for people to, you know, act like complete tools. Um, it's not apology for awful shit like pedophilia or slavery. Uh, it is just a s- rock-solid fantasy tale with a good uh, utilization of the character being from Earth as we know it. Uh, shocking, I know, uh, but it simply is just good because it's well-written. I can't believe that it took me that long to figure it out, but that's how you make a good isekai. <laughs> You've done it. You finally you've uncovered the secret. I, I I I know it's like it's like reinventing the wheel somehow and being shocked that I did it. Uh, beyond that, uh, my forays into Final Fantasy fourteen ah. continue. I am currently making my way through Heaven's Ward. Um, I am super excited for what's to come next in that. Um, so do feel free to keep an eye out. My how uh, how do people watch that? Announced. Where do they go? They go to twitch.tv forward slash warridesha. Mm. Uh, feel free to drop a follow on there and you'll get notified when I'm going live. Um, I'm about a third of the way through the expansion if I had to spitball, maybe more like a quarter. But yeah, thoroughly enjoying it so far uh, and I'm taking it all the way to Endwalker. Um, huh. God help me, I'm going to do it. I'm going to stream all of it live, at least as far as the main story quests are concerned. So do check that out. But otherwise, yeah, Hit me up on the Twitter at Shane10Cent to talk to me about anything and everything except bad isekai, because fuck that. Let me tell you, anyone wanting the VOD of the second episode of your Heavensward stream, which I think that's the latest one you did, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. That, okay. That's correct, yes. Um, it's the one where I fight Ravana, the best boy, according to many people. The one who is basically a Gilgamesh from Final Fantasy if he were a giant book well giant so it's almost five hours long and uh i did some work on it in the youtube editor over the weekend and as of this morning it was still processing so as soon as uh youtube servers uh get moving on it 
Uh, it will be released uh, if you are waiting for that VOD. Um, as for me, uh, I also uh, stream on the Watery Desho Twitch. Um, different games. Uh, latest I've been doing is Shin Megami Tensei Five, um, which has been really great and fun. I won't get to do it for a while because, like I said, I'm going on vacation and I don't plan to stream while I'm on vacation. Um, so it'll be a break. I don't. It, it may be the kind of thing where um, when I come back, it'll be a new game. Haven't decided. Don't know. Just depends on how the the mood strikes me. Uh, also, you can tweet me at the subtle doctor um, on Twitter. No spaces or caps or underscores necessary. Um, my Twitter account has largely become uh, an Elden Ring fan art retweet account um, and a DM <laughs> uh, inbox. So, but I am on there, and you can tweet me, and I'll talk to you about anything. Just do I have anything interesting to say? Just sort of putting out there in the ether. Not so much on Twitter. I kind of confining myself to the Discord uh, for for discussion over the past little while. Oh, and uh, and no doubt you'll want to uh, tell people mm-hmm. how we you might get access. Oh, to this absolutely, Discord uh, a Discord that I love very dearly. Um, you can uh, gain access to that uh, by dropping us uh, a little coin. Over on Ko-Fi, um, you any one-time donation that you make in the smallest amount—I think the smallest amount is three dollars—but um, you know it, that's the the minimum, and you only have to do it once, and then uh, it should send you a Discord link. If it does not, feel free to DM me on Twitter, email me at waterwaydesho at gmail That's also fine. Um, you know, send me a carrier pigeon, a smoke signal, whatever, and I will get you a Discord link. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, um, and you can, you know, feel free to donate us if you appreciate our, our work and want to support us financially. You can donate to us, rather, at uh, co-fi.com slash show. That's how you get there. And uh, yeah, you can get the Discord access. And like I said, it's great fun. We have a lot of fun discussions. Um, we do... Uh, exclusive streams just for the discord like sometimes we play like jackbox um and like have some movie streams and and, uh uh i don't know how if we've done one in a while but um or or recently rather but we do infrequently we do an anime sampler or it's community organized where a bunch of people get together and watch a bunch of first episodes like every, everyone put the, puts a bunch of anime on a wheel that spun a virtual wheel and whichever one is is landed on we watch the first episode of and uh chat about it it's great fun a lot of fun to be had in the discord uh like i said kofi gets you access um uh also uh if you have subbed to us on twitch and you want discord access uh hit me up i don't know if Discord and Twitch are integrated in that way where subs get that. I'll have to look into that because I'm really new to this Twitch thing and we've recently become an affiliate. But I feel like if you sub to us on Twitch, you should also get a Discord invite. Uh, so we're, we're going to try to make that happen. Um, I know a few people have subbed to us on Twitch and we really appreciate it. Um, more, yeah. more to come on that. Uh, right now, it's just kind of a tip jar. But with, like I said, Discord access involved. Uh, so... Yeah, and if you you don't want to financially support us, that's perfectly fine. You know, you uh, but if you do still want to help us out algorithmically, 
Uh, you can uh, rate and review Watery Desk Show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you know, give us the old five snake, five star review and uh, write some some fine words about us. Uh, and it'll be much appreciated and very helpful for our discoverability. You know, you could follow us on Twitter. You could follow us on YouTube. You could share our stuff and like it and tell one person you know in real life about Water We Death Show and how great it is and why they should listen to it. That would help us out. Um, Heck yeah. But enough plugs. Uh, th- you know, we're done now. This has been the burning cast. And uh, look forward to Wolf Children. Uh, I'm very excited for that. Uh, I'm going to go to the beach. Shadon is going to stream Final Fantasy XIV. Until we meet again, everyone. Embrace each other, everyone, to the ends of the universe. Good night. Bring back the brothers. 